This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Debate Night in America. A whole bunch of uh, very interesting debates this week happening around the country. In Pennsylvania, a lot of folks paying attention to the debate and analyzing the the debate between Dr. Oz and John Fetterman. A lot of people uh, still uh, breaking down the debate that took place between Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida and the former governor of Florida, Charlie Crist, that happened a day ago. And uh, we're wondering, we're just a handful of days away from the midterm elections, and we're wondering where this all goes from here. I'm going to be voting on Saturday. I'm voting early. I love to vote early where you don't see a lot of the uh, the lines and so forth. But uh, I know a lot of people like to wait until Election Day. Some people may be voting by absentee, especially those folks that are out of town. Where does that leave the voters, right? Um, I want to focus uh, for a few minutes on the New York State gubernatorial debate because this is the only one that's going to take place. And because this debate is now a real contest, now, I am someone that never thought this this race, this election between Governor Zeldin and Governor Hochul would be as uh, competitive as it has turned out to be. So I find this to be one of the most fascinating races in the whole country. And if a Republican can win in New York State for the first time in 20 years statewide, that really will be a red – that won't just be a red wave. That will be a red Tidal wave. Now, just so my cards are on the table, I'm not terribly impressed with uh, with either of these candidates. I'm going to vote for Congressman Zeldin, primarily because of the issue of congestion pricing, uh, but also because I know uh, Congressman Zeldin a little bit and I've uh, I've gotten to like him. I'd love to know your thoughts on the debate, especially these questions at 800-848-9222. I hate to couch the the debate in the terms of winners and losers, because obviously if you like Hochul, you think she won. If you like Zeldin, you probably think he won. But who do you think came across better? 800-848-9222. I'd love to dig a little deeper, though. If you're a Zeldin supporter, meaning you're someone that was inclined to vote for Zeldin, as I was, what opportunities do you think he missed? What did he say or not say that uh, you wish he didn't? If you're a Hochul supporter, I want to know the opposite from you. What did she miss? Even if you're voting for Hochul, I want you to tell me the area where she was weakest. And do you think this changed any minds? I do not. I think there's not a single person in this state, maybe one, but maybe there's more than one. I doubt it. I don't think there's many people in this state. Let me put it that way that watched this debate and said, you know, 
Whoever impresses me more in this debate, that's who I'm going to vote for. I really do think that just about the entire state of New York has made their determination as to who they're going to vote for. My take is uh, I think they both did really well. I don't think anybody's mind was changed about this. And, look, I I hate to be superficial here, but unfortunately when you're dealing with electronic media and uh, debates like this, there are superficial aspects that come into it. I listened to the debate on the radio because I was driving in, and it did reinforce some things that I've always felt about both Governor Hochul and Lee Zeldin. One, in the case of uh, of Kathy Hochul, we're gonna we're gonna play some of the audio from her in just a moment. In the case of Kathy Hochul, the she's got sort of a weird gravelly voice. I don't I don't know if gravelly is the right right word. It's sort of an annoying voice. I, I, I almost feel like I'm being lectured to when I'm listening to Governor Hochul. Or there's, there's an inside joke that she's aware of that I'm not privy to. And again, it has nothing to do with substance. It's purely superficial. But it, it is something that I noticed and I figured I would share my observations with you. In the case of uh, Lee Zeldin... He again came across, as he did during the primary debates to me, as very whiny. You know, again, I'm voting for the guy anyway, and I like him. But just his presentation, and I realize this is not how we pick governors, and some of the best mayors, governors, and presidents we've ever had uh, probably just sounded horrible. Look, my hero, Theodore Roosevelt, he had a voice that uh, sounds like he's been inhaling helium for weeks, right? Um he just I don't know if anybody else had that impression with either of the candidates' voices, but uh, to me, Governor Hochul came across just her voice and her tone very pompous, and Lee Zeldin came across very whiny. Um, I thought Hochul did a good job getting beyond the abortion issue. I think if we've seen anything over the last three weeks of polling as her lead has evaporated, It's that her whole campaign, which has been focused on abortion, is not working. Uh, And I think Zeldin has done a good job counteracting that. She at least did mention a few other areas in the debate and did make a a decent case for her record in some of those other areas. So that's the area that I give Hochul the most credit. I thought Zeldin did a – Zeldin has to, in some ways, do the exact opposite of what Hochul was trying to do. Hochul's whole campaign has been about abortion. That hasn't worked. Zeldin's whole campaign has been about crime. That has worked. So Zeldin had to, as much as she had to get off the abortion issue, in my view, Zeldin had to stick with that crime issue. And I think he did. And I think he did a very effective job, even the way that he was dodging some of the questions. um, And I thought the moderators did a good job, as I said to Dominic Carter on his show uh, on WABC in New York. I um, I really do think that uh, Zeldin did a good job hammering that crime theme home. The areas where I thought both candidates were weak, and I'd love to hear your take at 800-848-9222. One is on the issue of, for Governor Hochul, I thought Zeldin killed her on the issue of pay-to-play corruption. Zeldin made a very compelling case that there's one set of rules for everybody else and there's one set of rules for Kathy Hochul's donors. And I, unless I missed it, I don't think Hochul did a good job responding to that criticism at all. 
I, I thought that was a completely unanswered attack from Lee Zeldin. I think those punches landed. And uh, as far as Zeldin, I think he could have done a better job on the Trump tap dance, right? He was trying to almost be too cute by a half, right? She was trying to nail him as a Trump supporter. He should have said I, what I would have done if I were him and say, yes, Donald Trump was a very good president. I was proud to support him. I'm proud to work with him. And the fact that you, in, and I recognize a lot of New Yorkers disagree with me, but the fact that you keep bringing up Donald Trump shows how empty your record is. And the fact that you have nothing to go on except the fact that I voted for a different presidential candidate than you tells New Yorkers everything they need to know. Instead, in the light, in the uh, cross question portion of the show, when she was asking him, do you think Donald Trump was a great president? He should have just said yes. Instead, he goes on listing a, a multitude of Trump accomplishments and then doesn't answer the question. And there were a couple of other areas like that. And then when the moderators asked him, do you hope that Trump runs for president again? The same thing. I'm not even thinking about that. I thought that was a little weak. And I thought his explanation, and this is one of the things that I found unsatisfactory about Zeldin's campaign so far. I thought uh, his explanation of his selective adherence to separation of powers was was kind of weak. You know, for the whole campaign, he's been saying that, uh, oh, I have the power unilaterally to declare a state of emergency and change all the bail laws on my own and all the other criminal justice issues uh, on my own without the legislature. I'm going to do that all on my own. But abortion? Oh, no, 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 I can't do anything there. That's got to come from the legislature. It, it sort of seems like he was trying to have it both ways, and I think he could have done a better job kind of navigating that tightrope. So that's my honest opinion. In terms of winners and losers, I don't think there was because I don't think that uh, it changed any votes. Tell me if you – that's the totality of my analysis. I'd rather hear from you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with uh, Chris in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Good morning, Frank. Uh, I agree with you 100% on the voices of uh, – Zeldin and Governor Hochul, you're, you're spot on about that. Um, I thought Zeldin was able to get some productive digs and criticisms directed at Governor Hochul, but he comes across as angry and somewhat unlikable. And now the act of his campaign screwing up the independent third party petitions several months back, I think that's going to make the difference in this race, because I think Zeldin will probably lose by less than 7 percent. And in this year's election for New York State gubernatorial race, I think this year an independent third-party line could have garnered 6 to 7% in a two-candidate field where one of those candidates has that third line. Yeah, I, I, and thank you for the, uh, thank you for the uh, call, Chris. I don't agree. Uh, I don't think – so basically, if people don't know what Chris is talking about, uh, Lee Zeldin submitted signatures to create an independence party line, and he submitted uh, all sorts of – photocopied signatures, Xeroxed signatures, and obviously those signatures are no good, so they threw that line off the ballot. And obviously Zeldin shouldn't have done that, and his campaign shouldn't have done it, and I think ultimately the person that's responsible for that, and I've talked about this before, will be indicted. I think there will be indictments in that. But um, I don't think it makes a hill of beans uh, I don't th- of difference. I don't think there's anybody in this state that said, you know, I would vote for Lee Zeldin if only he was on the Independence Party line. 
But because he's only on the Republican and conservative line, I'm not going to vote for him. I don't think so. In this day and age, I don't think so. I think Zeldin is people know he's a Republican and people are going to either vote for him or hold that against him. I don't think that uh, Independence Party line would have generated a significant amount of votes. I think you're talking 20,000, 30,000 votes about that. 800-848-9222. Ernie is in Port Chester. Hello, Ernie. Hey, Frank. How come anytime there's an outsider come in, uh, you know, the, the, their collectors getting too big. There's not enough money to go around anymore and even if there was and say we came down to a uh, a runoff you know you know who wrote the book on that uh runoff al franken remember that well but new york Hold doesn't out. new york state doesn't have runoffs you mean if there's a tie well there's not going to be a request not going to be a tie re- are you well, talking about a recount yeah. Oh, okay. Well, no, no. Yeah, I think that's less likely this year because of the changes in how the absentee ballots are counted, but uh, it is possible. And uh, if it gets to that point, that's already a victory for Zeldin because that race should, this race should never be that close. If it gets to that yeah, point, but- that would seem to favor Hochul because of two reasons. Uh, the um, Republican electorate, and we've seen this all over the country, including in New York, the Republican electorate likes to vote in person for the most part. For the most part. And the Democratic electorate tends to be much more likely to vote by mail. And they have changed the absentee ballot rules in New York. I don't want to get too into the weeds on this, but they've changed the absentee ballot rules in New York to allow you to cure your absentee ballot. So if you would have made a mistake, let's say you wrote the wrong address, the wrong name, you didn't sign the back of the envelope. In the old days, meaning up until a year ago, those votes would have just been thrown out. But because of the changes made to the legislature, the, um, the, those votes can now be cured, meaning they reach out to the voter and say, hey, Mrs. McGillicuddy, you forgot to sign the back of your envelope. Um, we want to make sure you can cure this ballot. And if they cure it, then that vote counts. Now, who is that likely to favor? Well, um, like it or not, the people more likely to make mistakes on their absentee ballot are folks that are on the lower socioeconomic end of things, people that uh, might not have the best education, might not have the best eyesight, uh, people that are not necessarily the most literate folks in the world. And those folks are more likely to vote Democrat than Republican. So if it gets to paper, if it gets to the the paper ballot phase, affidavits and absentees, then uh, I think Hochul would be would be favored. 800-848-9222. Tony is in Clifton. Hello, Tony. Hi. How are you feeling today? Hey, still strong <laughs> as a bull moose. I know my wife's cold is trying to infect me. I sense the germs coming for me, but I refuse to succumb to them. Awesome. So I wanted to let you know my thoughts. I'm a New Jersey resident. We went through this race with... Um, Chitterelli and uh, Murphy, sure. Jack Titarelli and Murphy Titarelli, exactly. And it was very intense for us because we're the same color state as New York, and we're we're like sister states. And my thing is with Titarelli is that he was missing something that would have gotten whatever votes he needed from those people who are kind of on the fence, who maybe if you say something to me that means something, you'll get my vote. 
And I think there's still a lot of people like that out there. And to me, Lee Zeldin didn't say anything that broke down those red-blue barriers. And Uh that's what's needed. Yeah, I would agree with you uh, largely, Tony. I think um, you're right. The candidates who uh, can outperform their party do tend to have a certain type of charisma that uh, that exactly. transcends politics. Uh, Rudy Giuliani had that in 93. I think uh, exactly. Glenn Youngkin had that to some extent in uh, in Virginia. And I would agree. I don't think that um, if you're kind of just a regular rank-and-file Democrat voter who's who doesn't really know much about Kathy Hochul and you're upset about the fact that you can't afford to live here, taxes are too high, and crime is going through the roof, I don't know that Zeldin necessarily did anything to cause you to cross party lines. That's an interesting observation on your part, Tony. Uh, and uh, I, do, I, do, I can see what you mean by that. Uh, 800-848-9222. And look, that's not something Zeldin can change. Uh, charisma is one of those things you either have or you don't, right? I mean, it's not as if he could study harder in debate prep and become a more charismatic candidate, right? Uh, Tim is in Queens. Hello, Tim. Yeah, hi. All right. So basically, I hate both of them just for different reasons. I want none of the above. Uh, with Hochul, there's no way in hell I'm voting for Hochul. She's a joke, especially when it comes to crime. She still will not scrap bail reform. She is a joke. No way I'm voting for her. That's off the table. But I'm sorry, Zeldin, look, uh, January 6th to me, yeah, that was a pretty big deal. And at 10 p.m. that night when he votes to overturn a Democratic election, uh, when, when you say you support law enforcement, well, to me that means the Metropolitan D.C. Police That means the United States Capitol Police. That means the U.S. Secret Service that we're all put in danger by the tweet at 2.24 p.m. of Donald Trump um, while the attack was underway. All right. I'm sorry. I'm not in that cult anymore. So what are you doing? So between a rock and a hard place. uh, So are you writing in one of the third party candidates, Larry Sharp or Howie Hawkins or somebody? I guess I'm going to have to. I mean, listen, if if all other things being equal, I, 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 I would lean towards Zeldin. I am just. You know, I don't know that I can pull that. Yeah, I I, I don't blame you, Tim. I don't blame you, Tim. I'm not happy with either candidate uh, myself. I'm voting for Zeldin uh, because one of these two candidates is going to be the governor. Right. And this race is unexpectedly close. And um, the bottom line is, if Lee Zeldin is elected governor, I know that there will be there's a much better chance that I will not have to pay between $5 and $23 for the privilege of coming to work every day. So to some extent, I'm voting self-interest. Additionally, um, is it more likely that taxes are going to go up in a Hochul administration? I think the answer to that is yes. Even though she did, she was responsible for cutting the gas tax and for uh, giving us those tax rebate checks, uh, I think that was more of an election year gimmick. I think there's more of an opportunity to improve the cost of living with uh, with Lee Zeldin. So everything you said um, regarding his vote on January 6th, uh, I can see why you say that. But there's a lot at stake here, right? And so while I might not like a lot of the things that Zeldin has done, I feel like I have to vote for him. But I can understand where you're coming from. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. Marie is on Staten Island. Hello, Marie. Marie, do I have you? Okay. 800-848-9222. Sandra is in New Jersey. Hello, Sandra. 
I'm ready to go to sleep. I was just about to give up. But I just wanted to say one thing. They both did equally the same. I kind of agree with you. I really want Lee Zeldin to win, but that's not the point I want to make. I just resented that Governor Hochul made you feel like Trump is a dirty word. How dare she? As far as I'm concerned, Donald Trump was the best president. I really think he did a wonderful job. If you look at how he did and how the new one is doing, I won't even say his name. Oh, it's like night and day. Sandra, I'm going to let you go just because there's a bunch of feedback on your line. I think if Zeldin would have given that answer that you just gave, that would have um, made him come across as a bit more sincere. Look, everyone knows he was for Trump and that he worked with Trump and was a Trump supporter. So why not say that? What's with this this tap dancing? For instance, this is uh, when uh, Zeldin was asked about voting for Trump. This is what he said in the future. This is what he said. Do you want to see Donald Trump run for president in 2024, Lee Zeldin? Not even thinking about it. I'm focused on 14 days from today, defeating Kathy Hochul and saving New York State. You're not even thinking about it? There's 200 million Americans that every day think about whether Donald Trump is going to run for president or not. You honestly expect us to believe you're not even thinking about it? Um, so we, the reason Hochul did that, and I agree it has nothing to do with actually being the governor of New York. The reason Hochul did that is she's got to do two things. I think she recognizes she's going to lose upstate big. I think she recognizes she's going to lose Long Island big. She has to drive up turnout in New York City and drive up turnout in Democratic areas in Brooklyn, Manhattan, the Bronx especially, and knock Lee Zeldin um, below that 30% level. She also has to win Westchester by a healthy margin and Trump is not that popular in New York City or Westchester. So by tying Trump to Zeldin and vice versa, she's hoping to suppress the Zeldin vote in Westchester and in New York City. Uh, so I think that's what that's about. 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah, hi, hi. Hi. Um, I, I believe, uh, Frank, what you said in the uh, your monologue, that basically you don't feel that any minds were changed by the debate between Zeldin and Hochul. Am I correct? Yes, that, that? I do believe that, yes. Uh, okay, let, let me give you my logic why I think maybe that's not correct. I, I could be wrong, but we'll see. First of all, by definition, when we're saying, we, which we hear all over, Zeldin has the momentum. What does that mean? That means that, hey, people are all of a sudden, yeah, maybe I should vote for him. And watching the debate could make a difference. Also, the fact that many, we, we, all of us that know what's happening in politics, sort of assume everybody knows. No, they don't. There are many more Democrats than Republicans in New York, as we know. So many of them, I'm voting Democrats, local Democrats. They don't even know what's going on. Then they watch the debate, and they hear certain points from uh, uh, Zeldin. They're saying, hey, you know, yeah, I am scared to go outside. Or I didn't know she was corrupt. He sounds convincing. I don't know why you feel it wouldn't have made a difference. Well, yes, because I don't think well. I don't think the people that you're talking about, a theoretical low information voter that uh, kind of goes naturally, reflexively with the Democratic Party, I don't think those folks were watching the debate to begin with. I think if they're not tuned into politics, they're not likely to be watching the debate. So I think the only people that were watching this were folks that likely had their mind made up. Now, the, these debates, if one of the candidates scores a major knockout 
out blow or makes a major gaffe. And we've seen this many times. Obviously, in recent years, the best examples include uh, the uh, Dan Quayle getting schooled by Lloyd Benson or Admiral Stockdale saying, who am I? Why am I here? Or Marco Rubio constantly repeating himself and being embarrassed by uh, Chris Christie. The Those are moments that live on in the news cycle and then do break through to those low information or, or, voters. Or, or, but there were no... B- right, but yeah, uh, right. Uh, yeah, um, Mondale, the brilliant yeah, response. Exactly. That, that Mondale incident... That's uh, an area that broke through on the mainstream that news yeah. to non-political people. This, there was nothing in this debate last night that's going to be breaking through to the non-political folks. Nothing, as far as I could see. There's nothing that, if you don't watch the news regularly and you didn't tune into the debate, there's nothing that you're going to see in the paper and say, Oh my goodness, I can't believe Hochul said that. There's no way I could vote for her. There's nothing, there was no moment like that. Like when Rick Lazio ran over to Hillary Clinton and they said he was trying to intimidate her, there was no moment like that and on either side. So I think really what this is going to come down to is who can turn out their base. And unfortunately, that seems to be what every election is coming down to these days. 800-848-9222. Al is, well, we got Al before on another program. Let me go to Alex in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Sorry, Frank. Uh, you stole my thunder a little bit about Trump over there, but I want—I want to get to my point um, that I, I have absolutely no clue why Governor Hochul keeps bringing up Trump. Oh, Trump this, Trump that. What does that have to do with Lee Zeldin being the governor? What does that have to do with any governor of your city? There's a safety crisis in the city. There's a state of emergency. What does this have to do with Donald Trump? Right. It's, well, it's all strategic. It, this is all her playing to the cheap seats. And the cheap seats are the uh, the people that turned out to vote against Donald Trump in 2020. Those are the people that she wants to make sure every single one of them turn out in New York City and in Westchester and really the whole state, but especially those two areas in uh, 2022. So that's my take on it. Those of you that are on hold, if you want to continue to hold, we'll get to you. My friend Gene Berardelli is here. He's got a fascinating a new book out, and it's actually really interesting. It's called Schnooks, Crooks, Liars, and Scoundrels, A Field Guide to Identifying Political Buffoons. We're going to get into that straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, 
do we, we have Gene? Uh, okay, good. Uh, I uh, have been a friend and admirer of uh, Gene Berardelli for a long time. He is a uh, an attorney in uh, New York State, but has uh, been involved in all sorts of things around the country. Great political thinker, a wonderful guy, and he is the author of a book called Schnooks, Crooks, Liars, and Scoundrels, A Field Guide to Identifying Political Buffoons. I have to tell you, when I first looked at this book, I kind of it's very cleverly illustrated. There's a lot of very clever illustrations, which we're going to talk about in a minute. I kind of expected this book to be just silly because I thought that the illustrations were designed more towards humor. And I thought this was going to be your typical Republicans, good Democrats, bad look at politics. And I figure, okay, Gene's a friend of mine. I'll have him on to talk about it. Lo and behold, I read this book and this is why you should not judge a book by its cover. This book is honestly nothing short of brilliant. This book is able to blend history with a lot of great quotes and a lot of great depths, a lot of great depth uh, and a lot of great historical context with what's happening in America today. And at the same time, actually give not just voters, but all Americans sort of a a way to guard themselves against the worst elements in society and the political system. So it really is a uh, terrific, really well-written book uh, that says in language that even dullards like me can understand why some people are uh, schnooks, crooks, liars, and scoundrels. Gene, it's great to talk with you, and uh, thanks for joining me on the radio. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. What an introduction. That might be the the greatest introduction I've I've ever heard. The checks in the mail, pal. <laughs> there you go. Uh we'll have uh we'll have our folks tell you where where you could send it. Uh, hey Gene, before we talk about the book, I'm sure you watched uh last night's uh gubernatorial debate in New York, maybe even the uh US Senate debate in Pennsylvania. If you did watch either or both of those debates, what were your impressions? So I did watch both of the debates, uh, and I've been listening to a lot of what your your listeners have been saying uh, in the past couple of minutes, and all great takes, by the way. If there was ever a definition of a hold-your-nose election, it's what's happening in the gubernatorial race in New York. I think both candidates, both Lee Zeldin, who, with full disclosure, is currently my congressman, and Kathy Hochul, they both have their issues. And their issues seem to revolve around the same thing, avoidance of their own shortcomings. And I think those shortcomings came out in both of the tactics that they brought in the election. Now, when it comes to the Pennsylvania election, just very quickly, uh, you know, again, the candidates had their own warts and all. But I feel really badly about talking about Fetterman because all I do is feel empathy for what he's going through personally. And it, it. it's I'm I'm here talking about a book about political buffoonery. I'm I'm not going to pick on the infirmed. You know what I mean? Right. I get that. I get that. Um, you no, know, that make that all makes sense. Well, so let's talk about the let's talk about the uh, the book. What what made you write this book? Obviously, you're a pretty busy guy. You got a, a vibrant law practice and a lot of other stuff going on. And I can tell the amount of work and the amount of research that you put into this book. Why write it? So I wrote this. For a couple of reasons. First reason is uh, because I was involved in politics in what I lovingly call the People's Republic of New York City, I came across a lot of characters and a lot of candidates in my capacity as being one of the attorneys for the Republican Party in Brooklyn. 
And I had to find a way to sort of rationalize why these sorts of characters get into politics and to see if there's anything redeemable about them or anything like that. The other reason why is because a lot of my friends who are observers in politics were seeing the same things I was. And we would have these discussions about politics and what draws these sort of people into politics. And this book is sort of like a, a, a love letter to that 10 years of my involvement in institutional politics, where I ran into a great many types of buffoons. All right. Now, um, what is the worst, a schnook, a crook, a liar, or a scoundrel? What is the worst thing to be? There are, I think the worst thing to be is a scoundrel. And I think that it corresponds to uh, a, a plethora of buffoons. But as people will see in the book, I do try to do sort of an ascending range of buffoons from the from the bless your heart crowd to the really radioactive. And I think in New York State, we have seen the gamut of them. Yeah. And it does, it's not it's not just one party, Frank. It's politics in general. No, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about your book. You go, you, um, you're not selective in terms of picking on one party or one ideology. You let everybody have it, uh, including Republican senators, including one person we're going to talk about in a minute. But Republican senators going all the way back to the days of Roscoe Conkling in the uh, in the 1870s and 1880s. So it was really an educational book as well. Um, all right, you spent a little bit of time focusing on Kamala Harris. What is she? Schnook Crook liar scoundrel and why wow what a question uh see the thing about buffoonery is there isn't a discrete classification someone can be a hybrid buffoon and contain so many different aspects of different types of buffoons that are identified in the book i would say that there's an aspect of her that has all four of them she's a schnook because when you hear her speak her word salad sometimes, you, you kind of have to laugh it off and realize what a buffoon she is. She's a crook if you think about what was going on in California when she was attorney general and uh, the issue of prison labor and keeping uh, prisoners longer than their term in order to maintain the, 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 uh, the labor there. Uh, she's a liar for many of her hot takes in politics, especially when she was on the, the Senate uh Judiciary Committee, and, and you heard her speak on, on behalf of the Democratic Party when it came to judicial appointments and, th- and things like that. And she's a scoundrel because she's in D.C. She's part of that swamp mentality where you put yourself before your represent- your representation in, in politics. So in a way, she's sort of all four of those and, and probably more about the uh, different subcategories we identify in the book as well. All right. Let me ask you about a fellow that is a household name, not only to New Yorkers, but to Americans around the country, because he's uh, had a starring role in the last three presidential impeachments. Uh, Congressman Gerald Nadler recently renominated to be the Democratic nominee here in New York. Here he was back in 1998 talking about the Clinton impeachment. But the impeachment of the president is even worse. Because again, we're losing distinction of, uh, we're losing track of the distinction between sins and crimes. We're lowering the standard of impeachment. What the president has done is not a great and dangerous offense to the safety of the republic. In the words of George Mason, it is not an impeachable offense under the meaning of the Constitution. And as you heard from Mr. Conyers, the allegations are far, far from proven. And the fact is, we are not simply transmitting 
evidence to the transmitting a case with some evidence to the Senate as evidenced by the fact that we already heard leaders of this House say he should resign. God forbid that he should resign. He should fight this and beat it. Uh, he was very fired up and just as fired up 20 years later when he was speaking uh, just as vociferously in favor of the impeachment of another president, Donald Trump. We intend to secure accountability for any wrongdoing because no one is above the law, not even the president of the United States. You seem to um, accuse Congressman Nadler of hypocrisy here and you cite his being on both sides of the impeachment issue. Uh, Where do you think Gerald Nadler falls in terms of uh, political buffoonery? And I'll I'll do you one better just so we can keep this fair and balanced. Gerald Nadler and Lindsey Graham, for example, are examples of what I like to call the agenda gymnast. They are the buffoon that will see the goal at the end of the rainbow that they want to reach, and they will contort their own personal views and their own personal credibility to try to reach that goal. If you listen to what Jerry Nadler was saying in that clip that you just played, you could have easily switched those two speeches and attributed them to Lindsey Graham, who, by the way, was one of the impeachment managers during the Clinton uh, impeachment. And you could see those same two speeches coming out of his mouth, just in reverse, depending upon the jersey of the person that is the subject of the inquiry, whether it be Republican or Democrat. So to me, he's Nadler, Graham, and many others are the sort of contortionists that are trying to bend their way to get to the goal. And that goal is supremacy of their own power and their party's power. Now, if Gerald Nadler were here, I think that he would probably say, well, it may seem that way, but the difference is in the Clinton era, what he did was not impeachable. And in the Trump era, what he did was impeachable. Lindsey Graham probably would say the same thing with the president's reversed. Why isn't that a, a fair thing for either of those guys to say? Well, frankly, I I think it's not really a fair thing for either one of them to say. I'm going to sort of reject the premise of the question because I I think the idea is that the end justifies the means. Uh, They're looking at the end goal. And that's why we we talk about, you know, flip-flopping politicians. Politicians will flip-flop or contort themselves as, as what I'm saying because they are looking at that end goal. You and I love baseball, Frank. Let me give you a baseball reference. Maybe you remember the movie Major League Two. Sure. And there was a new uh, new catcher that was brought in to replace Tom Berenger's character. And Bob Euchre, God bless him, played that role of Harry Doyle so well when he says, you know, I used to hate that guy when he was with the other team. It's amazing <laughs> what a change of uniform will do for a, a player. No, but he wasn't, That's talking, what this is all about. he wasn't talking about the catcher. He was talking about Parkman. Parkman. Right. Uh, he was yeah. the catcher. Yeah. No. I, oh well, but I thought it was uh, the fellow that couldn't throw. That was uh, the, the Mackie Sasser. Oh no, guy. I'm not talking about Rube. I'm not talking about Rube. Yeah. I'm talking about I, Parkman. Yeah, no, I didn't realize pa- Parkman was uh, was a catcher. But uh, again, it's been a while since I saw the picture. Hey, let me ask you about a guy that is um, still very much in the public eye, still very much in the news, even though he hasn't been in public office in 14 months. Now he's the latest addition to the world of podcasting, and that's Andrew Cuomo. How do you uh, how do you grade Andrew Cuomo in terms of your political buffoonery index? Andrew Cuomo is the worst of the worst. And I say that in the worst way possible. Andrew Cuomo 
is the type of buffoon that is probably the most serious and, and corrupted buffoon is absolutely irredeemable. The, Andrew Cuomo is radioactive. Not only did he take himself down, he took down a great number of other people, including his brother, in his own failings. We saw it uh, when he was trying to clean up the, the swamp that is Albany with his his own uh, commission. the uh, Moreland Commission, sure. Corruption. Yeah, you did a great yeah, exactly. job um, highlighting some of the quotes, which we should have seen, and uh, some of us did see, as, uh, as exa- harbingers of things that would come next, including making clear that, uh, even though the, this was not accurate, making clear that uh, he was in charge of the commission, this was his commission, he's allowed to tamper with it as much as he can. I mean, you talk about narcissism and hubris, you make the case that this should have been a warning sign for everybody. Absolutely. Let's let's pull the quote. It's my commission, my subpoena power, my Moreland commission. I can appoint it. I can disband it. I appoint you. I can unappoint you tomorrow. So interference, it's my commission. I can't interfere with it because it's mine. It's controlled by me. If that doesn't sum up Andrew Cuomo in a nutshell, nothing does. But yet people kept reelecting him. And reelecting him for for comfort, for you know, because it's the the easy way to go, and you don't want to get involved in politics. Well, then look what happens a couple of terms later with uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. What happened in in nursing homes? What happened with his own uh, you know sexual misconduct uh, allegations and and what uh, the attorney general found out about him? You reap what you sow when you let buffoons fester. I don't think there's a congresswoman in the United States that's better known than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Also, probably few that are more polarizing. Uh, how do you view Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? I actually have a lot of respect for her. I, I think that if you ever want to talk about branding, AOC is AOC because she has branded herself that way and has implanted that acronym in the public consciousness. I really think that as far as branding goes and the way that she she definitely moves through politics, very good. But when you start looking for record, when you start looking for what she's actually accomplished, what bills she supported, there's nothing there. And then when you add in the fact, besides that she's a political gadfly and is just, you know, you know, sucking off of uh, the government, basically. You add into that that she's hypocritical in her own ways when it comes to ideas of economics of socialism. You know, she'll she'll you know say you know tax the rich and wear a dress to the Met, all while hawking a sixty dollars sweatshirt online on her own personal e commerce shop. I mean, if that doesn't scream hypocrisy, I don't know what does. If people, uh, but you got to give it to her. She keeps on becoming relevant because she knows how to brand herself. Uh, no, I uh, I completely agree with you. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Gene Berardelli. He's the author of a book called Schnooks, Crooks, Liars, and Scoundrels, A Field Guide to Identifying Political Buffoons. It's available on Amazon. You can get it for 99 cents if you want the Kindle version, a little bit more if you want a paper version. Let me ask you about a fella who has been very well known to the folks in the New York area for the last 40 years, but uh, pretty well known nationally for at least the last 25 or so, former presidential candidate turned MSNBC host back in the early days of his ascendant career as a civil rights leader. He was more known for a lot of the racially inflammatory things that he would say about people.
power. Because you know if a black man stood up next to you, he would see you for the hall that you really are. Now, while Al Sharpton uh, doesn't use language like that, at least not publicly anymore, uh, that really did define a lot of his early uh, public commentary, calling Mayor Dinkins, the first black mayor of New York City, uh, he said he had the only N-word problem. He wanted to be the only N-word on television and so forth. How do you uh, characterize Al Sharpton, and has your evaluation of Sharpton changed over time as he sort of tried to mature his own public image? Al Sharpton is the alpha and the omega of political buffoonery. He is the beginning and the end. The book goes through about 11 different subcategories of buffoons. Al Sharpton fits into every single subcategory of buffoon (laughs) that we've identified so far in this pseudoscience that I I like to call buffoonology. You can find an example of Al Sharpton being, you know, a just bless your heart buffoon, the sort of innocuous, harmless person that, you know, their, their reach exceeds their grasp or that he's so radioactive that you don't even want to deal with him from being on you know TV and complaining about how he was portrayed in movies to the clip that you just played with talking about David Dinkins or going after Jesse Jackson uh, back in the day. You may remember that as well to his botched runs for both New York uh, State, New York uh, Senate and for uh, the presidency. My goodness, what a body of work. As you said, over 40 years, he has become and transmuted himself into every type of buffoon identified in the book. But- in fact, every chapter has a little mention about Al Sharpton going off of and being a buffoon. But because Sharpton uh, is not the Al Sharpton of the a jogging suit and gold medallion era that a lot of folks remember him as being in the early 80s. Does he get any credit in your book uh, for maturing at all, for rebranding himself at all, for reinventing himself at all? Well, there there is at least one instance where he does feel some remorse, but I don't think a, I don't think a zebra changes their stripes in that way. I I think that because he has found easier paths of resistance and different ways and different hustles to do. I don't think that means that he hasn't changed at his core from being this just prototypical political buffoon that is caring more about his own ego ego and his own power, his own self-gratification than he is about the issue at hand. It's the only difference now between the uh, tracksuit wearing medallion clad Al Sharpton with, with everybody wanted to have the Al Sharpton haircut. And today's Al Sharpton is that he's dressing in finer suits and getting on private planes when he's going to act like a buffoon now. All right. Last uh, high profile Politico I'll ask you about is uh, the senator from Texas, Ted Cruz. You spend a little bit of time focusing on his handling of a, a freak snowstorm in Texas where he chose to leave the state. This is him speaking to WFAA in Texas about leaving Texas during the snowstorm. We had spent two days without power, and my girls wanted to take a trip with their friends and frankly get somewhere uh, where. It was warmer. Uh, they said, "Look, why don't we t- why don't we take a trip? Let's 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 go somewhere where it's not so cold." I started having second thoughts almost the moment I sat down on the plane. Leaving when so many Texans were hurting uh, didn't feel right, and so I, I changed my return flight and and, and flew back 
uh, on the first available flight I could take. Do you understand why people are so upset right now? And it, it sounds like you, you do have a little bit of remorse from this. Do you, do you feel that it's deserved or no? Oh, sure. Of, of course, I understand why people are upset. So what's the matter with Ted Cruz? Why was that explanation insufficient? And we only have about a minute here, Gene. So give us the Reader's sure. Digest version. The Reader's Digest version It's a shocking lack of self-awareness. Ted Cruz tried to create this self-image of a tireless and virtuous politician. The holier-than-thou politician, if you will. I'm the one getting things done. Well, when your state needs you the most on the front lines of an emergency, your family and you decide apparently to go to uh, Cancun. And then the explanation you give is, it kind of falls apart when you look at the facts. He claimed that he was always you know, going to be coming back after dropping off his family in, in Mexico. I don't think the facts bore that out when they looked at when he bought his ticket. Mm. So it was more about saving face than it was about public service. And that's what made him a buffoon. Man, why did I go, make me go after people I like? Hey, uh, well, that's what makes you so refreshing. Uh, the book is really interesting. It's uh, it's fun. It's uh, really it's intelligent. And it's really something people should read. Schnooks, Crooks, Liars, and Scoundrels. Its author is Gene Berardelli. You can uh, just search the title of that book on Amazon or just type in B-E-R-A-R-D-E-L-L-I. Congratulations on the book, Gene. We'll talk again soon. I appreciate it. Guys, get the 99-cent version. It's not about the money. It's about the message. Thanks so much, Frank. Hey, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 800-848-9222. Also, if you want to comment on any of the debates last night, you're welcome to. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Electric Light Orchestra. You ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show? Just join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M O R A N O Radio Fans and Haters. You know, I really do have to take issue with um, Matt Blaze and to a lesser extent Kenneth. Um, you know, last week we said repeatedly how we were going to make uh, a big deal about uh, Alex Barnard's birthday. Because Rita Cosby forced us to do it for Kenneth's birthday. And yet, I mentioned repeatedly that it was the 24th. Alex was telling perfect strangers on the street that it was the 24th. I heard him tell people that didn't even work here when he saw them in the hallways. It's the 24th. There's a maintenance guy that happened to get off on the wrong floor. Alex reaches out to him and says, by the way, my birthday is the 24th. Lo and behold... I am, you know, dealing with on Monday, the 24th, no sleep, no computer, trying to scramble to put a show on. None of you guys could mention to me that the 24th was Alex's birthday. Were you aware of this or did you forget also? 
So Alex told everyone, like you said, but you forgot. Well, but right. you didn't remember. Or yeah, Alex, but, and Alex what, told everyone you but you. Supposed to, to, he didn't tell you. No, no, he told me. But, okay. But then you didn't say, why don't we do something for him on air or something? I didn't say that. I know. That's what I'm saying. Why didn't you, you say? You said we wanted to do something on air for Right, him. but so why didn't, there was no birthday card that you passed around or anything? Not not until today. Well, no, I passed I passed it around. So we'll we'll take issue with this in a moment. To be continued. This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. So if you're just tuning in, Monday was the birthday of our producer, Alex Barnard, who's a uh, death metal uh, rock star of some sort with his band Lesbian Dance Theory. And, um, you know, again, I'm not a big person for celebrating all these birthdays at work because I'm not six or seven years old, but I'm in the minority here. And, you know, when my colleague Rita Cosby really insisted that we have a big party for Kenneth, it created a most favored birthday status among our staff. We can't have a thing for Kenneth and not do something at least as good for Alex Barnard, who was here, you know, before. So we all knew it was Alex's birthday, and then it was on Monday, and then, um, lo and behold, Matt Blaze. You, you yes. didn't say anything to me. No reminder <laughs> How on Monday. How on me? Well, See, this is the difference you, you, between men and women. Right. Because I'm the same way as you. And right. Rita said to me, she's like, oh, my God, I didn't know. But he, Right. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Monday, w- let's assume we all forgot, right? And but We did. did. did and you forgot also. I did. And you forgot also, Kenneth. So we all forgot. Yes. And did, you didn't wish him a happy birthday on Monday. I did Monday morning. Was it Monday morning? Oh, so, no, yesterday morning. Yeah, yesterday. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm so yeah. lost with the days. I did wish him a happy birthday. It was Wait, yesterday, though. On Tuesday morning. Yes, because we came in Monday night, so it must have been Tuesday morning. So it was after his birthday right, But already. see, Monday night, we still would have had birthday opportunity for him. Um, and yet, it, and when you wished him the happy birthday, you didn't say to me, you know, Frank... Maybe you want to also wish him a happy birthday. You, you, or something had, you had left already. Am I unreachable? Am I unreachable? The amount of people that are able to reach me, you're the one person that can't reach so me. So after on. you left here Monday morning, yeah, you, while you're driving home, yeah, I'm supposed to text. text you and yeah. say, oh, by the way, we forgot it was Alex's yes, birthday. Exactly. I don't think that's too much to ask. <laughs> and then I you would have done something. Because, you know why? Because you know how sensitive Alex is. He probably went home and, and cried about the about his birthday being forgotten by all his friends. He I, did I, a Molly Ringwald sixteen candles kind of a deal. And and you couldn't even you know so then lo and behold I think he did actually. I, no doubt. No doubt. He, yeah. he I noticed him <laughs> being a little more dour than usual yesterday and I was wondering why. And now and then I'm I'm thinking to myself when I'm preparing the show for today, yesterday afternoon, and I had to come in early because there's a lot of other stuff going on. I'm looking at the calendar. It's the 25th. So wait a minute. That means tomorrow when we do the show, it's the 26th. We've missed Alex's birthday by a day and a half. So lo and behold, and, and I don't blame Kenneth because he wants to be the special birthday person and get birthday accolades that no one gets. So I ask uh, Kenneth, I, I say, well, you know, maybe we could do something nice for Alex since we all forgot his birthday or at least 
some of us forgot and others were part of a conspiracy to make it look like others forgot. And uh, I said, maybe we can do something nice for Alex. May, and I know he's always ordering halal. How about I give you my credit card and you order halal for everybody? Just get a whole bunch of halal stuff. And, of course, nothing is easy. Nothing's easy. I get an email back, no. <laughs> I get an email back, we, I can't do it. I don't know what to order. I've never ordered halal before. I, I, okay, this is just exhausting. Exhausting. So... Um, I know he's got a little bit of a sweet tooth also. I said, let's order let's order some um, some cupcakes. They won't deliver at it. So I go and go, go stop at this bakery to pick up uh, cupcakes and a card, by the way. And a um, you know, and I wait in this long line at this bakery. Good birth, a good bakery, very highly regarded here in New York State. And wait in this long line, and I get to the front of the line. Meanwhile, I don't think I should have to wait in the same line that the people that are ordering the goods are in as well, but I wait in it anyway. And this is exactly what I want to be doing, right, at this at this point in my evening. So I am waiting in this line. I get to the front. I said, all right, order order for pickup, Frank Morano. And then this woman in the who looks like she's about 19 in a Rolling Stones T-shirt looks at me as if I'm speaking a different language. And I'm thinking, did I? Now, I'm parked illegally now, and I'm just playing Russian roulette, not Russian roulette, playing craps. I'm playing parking craps in terms of whether or not I'm going to get a ticket or not. And I said, did I call in an order to the wrong bakery? And I said, she's asking me, what did you order? I said, well, I got some cupcakes and uh, and a chocolate chip cookie for Kenneth because his delicate sensibilities won't allow won't allow him to consume dairy. I said, well, are you sure? I said, yes, I'm sure. And then um, she can't find it. Can, can you stand over there? So now I have to wait for them to bring in a manager so they can find this order. So they then bring in the manager. And they're, uh, uh, what's your name again? Frank Morano. Okay. When did you order? Oh, f- several hours ago. Okay. What time was it supposed to be due? 7.45. Oh, it's right here. It's right in front of her the whole time. The first person who has now kept me waiting there an extra 15 minutes while my car is in jeopardy of being ticketed couldn't find the bag that was literally right in front of her. Literally right in front. Literally right in front. So that's that. Then we get here and we orchestrate a whole elaborate birthday celebration with all of my colleagues on the floor. And it was going to be at the top of the 11 o'clock hour, Eastern. And then we're all in here. Dominic Carter stops his show prep, Rita stops her prep for the hour. Uh, I stop, you know, what I'm doing. We're all gathered in here. We have candles lit in the cupcake. And then all of a sudden, Matt Blaze, you tell us, well, no, we can't do it anymore. What, what, when, well, why couldn't we do it at, at the top of the hour? Because the news is going on at that point. And now I don't hear the news because it, it's, 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 I don't want to get into the whole aspect of why, but I thought that it would have been done and we would have had enough time. But we didn't have enough time. In order, because Rita is in the middle of her show. But isn't the news a set amount of time each hour? It's a set amount of time that I don't know about because I don't hear it. I thought it was shorter than 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 what it was. I don't realize that it goes as long as it does. I thought it was shorter. It goes I didn't right know up that. to the top of the to the start of Rita's show, right? For, which for... I don't know because I don't hear that because I hear something different 
because of the way we run the shows on a national level, on the local level. So I don't hear the news. All right. So, so then I we, didn't know. Okay, so, so then we, we said, okay. We had to we'll, cancel the 11 o'clock birthday celebration <laughs> yes. and postpone it 26 minutes. And everybody, once again, stopped whatever they were doing. It's That's like, right. I think when, when they elect a pope, there's not this much stopping of what people are doing. So then we, we finally are able to sing happy belated birthday to Alex at, uh, at 1130. And uh, we put the, we give Kenneth his chocolate chip cookie. And uh, then we put the rest of the cupcakes that we give Alex's birthday cupcakes, put the rest of the cupcakes in the kitchen for people to have. And I said, all right, well, you know, we went to all this trouble to get these cupcakes. It's always bad luck not to have a birthday cupcake. Let me grab one. And I'm actually, this is one of the rare days that I'm wearing a clean shirt because we're going to the uh, Bernard McGurk uh, Memorial Mass after the show. And as I'm grabbing one of these cupcakes, I sit down to eat it. The, uh, The cupcake falls and I get it all over me and spill it all over my shirt. It's filled with icing. So now it's just I have to try and clean my shirt. Of course it's stained. Um, and so now I'm going to have to wear a necktie, which has been a struggle with my neck growing at the alarming rate that it is. Um, and uh, so this has been this has been a really rough birthday celebration. I am hoping, Alex Barnard, that you used your wishes wisely because a, a lot of good men, you know, suffered a great deal for this for this birthday situation of yours. And sorry, we forgot, by the way. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that that cupcake fell on your shirt was my wish. <laughs> See that? I, that I am amazed. Surprise me. I am that amazed by the me. way that you can turn anything into something about you. <laughs> you know, including well, inc- because I'm the only one that did any work oh. to celebrate your oh, birthday. I'm so sorry you suffered. Yes, you. Thank you. Thank oh, you. I'm so sorry you I, suffered. I appreciate that. No, you know, I did have a really nice birthday, though. That's and, good. And I really do appreciate the fact that you went to the trouble of getting me uh, cupcakes and the card. That was re- that was very thoughtful. Well, good. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, uh, we're happy to do it. I'm sorry we forgot earlier. Hopefully, no, it's okay. Hopefully that doesn't affect your mood for the rest of the week, and it doesn't affect no. the accuracy of your birthday wishes. Tonight was actually the perfect night to do it because I was so busy cutting a whole slew of sound from the debates and you know getting everything ready for you know it kind of set me back getting everything ready for this show in a little bit so i was so engrossed with the screen i didn't even leave the the control room that i'm in for a whole two hours so i was i was completely fooled the fact that we had to postpone it from 11 to 11 30 actually even made it better because we told them at 11 Oh, you got to come in. Rita needs you for something. And he's going, I can't leave here. I'm in the middle of the news. And we kept going, Alex, you got to come in here. You don't understand. I can't. I'm in the middle of the news. So then even at 1130 when we said, you got to come in here. I can't right now. I'm in the middle of something. So he, it was totally not on his mind that this was something for his birthday. So the surprise was a total surprise. Because if we would have done it on his birthday, Alex, come on. You got to come in here. He probably would have known. Right, but he was also probably surprised that we all forgot none of us even wished him happy birthday. I mean, that was surprising. Yeah, I wasn't really that surprised. He <laughs> <laughs> wasn't surprised that we forgot. All right, what so um, for, for, in honor of Alex's birthday, everybody should download his, uh, his death metal song. How do people get it again? Lethal Sleep, Spotify, iTunes, or as uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo likes to say, you can download it on Apple. Um, and uh, it's... 
Lethal Sleep by Face Stealer. Lethal Sleep by Face Stealer, available wherever podcasts are sold, you can including... You it on Apple. That's right. If you have an Apple, just download it right on there. <laughs> uh, you know it's at the top of Godric Cuomo's playlist. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. Enjoy Thank you, the, the, your whole birthday week. I hope it's delightful. It has been. Good. Good. 800-848-9222 uh, if you want to call in and wish Alex a happy birthday. But the best thing that you could do is download his song. Now, I do want to mention, hey, let me tell you what's coming up. This is going to be really exciting. You know who's going to join us in 10 minutes? M.R. Gorga. He is an expert in demons. And we are just a few days away from Halloween. When everybody starts thinking of the dead and the undead. And a lot of people have questions about demons. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen recently is a tremendous increase in the number of exorcisms. So there's a lot of folks, even within the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and other churches as well. Pentecostal Church, this is big with. There's a lot of folks that believe demonic possession is very real. And how do you know if someone you're in your life is possessed by a demon? What are some stories of people who have been possessed by a demon? We're going to get into that with M.R. Gorga in about 10 minutes. But uh, you might remember a week or two ago, we did the story about, wear, about uh, wearable tattoos, people whose loved one would pass away, and they would essentially have the tattoo of that loved one removed the skin removed and then framed and a lot of people seem to think that it was pretty weird i don't remember anybody calling in and saying oh yeah that's a good idea well it's very interesting i don't know if this is for real or this is the kind of thing that they put out there for reality tv show purposes but uh, kim kardashian the ex-wife of Uh, Kanye West, who's very controversial, once again, for reasons that we've stated, mostly making anti-Semitic remarks. And she is someone that some folks have said should be a presidential candidate herself. She actually asked her mother's surgeon, Kim Kardashian, asked Kris Jenner's surgeon to save her mother's bones so she could... Wear them as jewelry. Now, when this was revealed on the TV show, Keeping Up with the Kardashians or whatever the latest incarnation of it is, uh, Kim's sister, Kylie Jenner, told her mother uh, that this was this was creepy. She found it creepy. So Jenner made this shocking revelation at the top of Thursday, uh, Thursday's episode last week of the Kardashians with the mogul matriarch telling daughters Chloe and Kylie that Kim made a creepy request ahead of her mom's hip replacement surgery. Quote, Kim asked the doctor to save her my bones so she could make jewelry out of it. That's what Chris told her daughters, Chloe and Kylie, as she recovered in her bedroom. Kylie quickly responded, telling her mother, that's weird. Chloe didn't let Chris off the hook, though. Remember when you wanted your ashes, you wanted to be cremated and made into necklaces for us? That's weird. To which Chris excitedly replied, that's a great idea. Later, in a confessional, that's apparently where you stare at the television and just confess to the audience. 
Chloe explained that the family frequently talks about wills and death and outlined a particular request she wrote into her own will. We tell each other what our wishes would be if something terrible were to happen. If I'm in a coma, I'm still getting my nails done once a week, and that's in my will because people are going to visit me. I am curious, um, Do you? would you want, let's say someone had a hip replacement surgery or something along those lines, would you want someone's bones that you cared about, a parent, uh, a friend, a, a loved one, a sibling, a cousin, whomever, child even, would you want someone's bones, whether they're alive or not, if they could give you someone's bones or a part of it, would you want to make it into jewelry? Do you think wearable bones is the next big trend in fashion? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Now, I know better than to second-guess the Kardashian business behemoth. Kim Kardashian, I believe, is, if not a billionaire, pretty close to it. I know her sister is a billionaire because of her makeup and fashion line. But I think Kim is rapidly approaching billionaire status herself if she's not there already. So a lot these women, everyone loves to knock them. They have their finger on the pulse of the public sensibilities. They seem to know how to make a hit reality TV show at a time when the average lifespan of a reality TV program can be measured with an hourglass. They are very durable presence. They are a very durable presence on reality television. They're, they're very big in terms of fashion. They're very big in social media. They make a whole bunch of money. One sponsored tweet from Kim Kardashian, I think, goes for uh, something in the range of $200,000. So these women know what they're doing especially as it relates to fashion. Do you think this is the next big trend? Wearable bones from, you know, the Kardashian company? What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Melissa is on Long Island. Hello, Melissa. Hey, I just want to say happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Alex. Uh, That's very nice. Uh, On behalf of Alex, I will accept that happy birthday on his behalf. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Frank. I'm so happy to be able to say what I'm going to say now. Listen, the debate, yes. Change people. Let me tell you, I have a friend. He has nine people in his family willing and able to vote Republicans. Why? Because they were expecting Kathy Hoko to say anything about bringing back stop and frisk. And what he say is that apparently what the Democrats are doing is that they are appealing to the law they are not appealing to the law and all the people, but those that are in the other side of the law. Example that he gave me, part of Alexander Cortez district is Riker Island, and they are trying to get the inmates to vote, to get the right to vote so they can vote Democrat. So forget about people. These guys are not 
sure that they want to continue winning elections because we are not going to vote for people that are killing our people in the street. And besides that, they're not using just guns. She said that she's doing everything for gun control. But what about what they're using? Hammers, knives, machetes, swords, and train tracks. Forget it. They're going to All right, Marion, thank you. Keep in mind that uh, if a lot, most of the people at Rikers Island, not all, but most of the people at Rikers Island have not yet been convicted. So uh, most of them are entitled to vote. So it's uh, not necessarily, you know, a bad thing for a politician to uh, reach out to people that are accused of crimes. I know a lot of folks that uh, while they were awaiting trial voted for various candidates. Uh, I didn't make out a lot of what other what other things Marianne was saying there, but needless to say, uh, she is firmly on board with Lee Zeldin. So we'll see what happens. 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. What's up? Um, so just a quick shout-out to Alex. Uh, happy birthday. And um, I just wanted to say uh, I it wasn't just jewelry that Kim Kardashian wanted to turn her mom's ashes into. It was a diamond. There's a way to make diamonds. Well, no, a lot of, of people do that, right? But, but, yeah, so but I, 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 I thought it was a really cool idea. Cause, um, no, but that's common. Yeah. A lot of folks do that not just for a friend or, or a loved one, but for pets. Uh, they make their pets' ashes into jewelry. But um, that's different than turning bones into jewelry. I mean, would you wear a ring or a, or a, or a bracelet made from someone's bones? Well, what, isn't that what ashes are? Well, um, this would I don't think this would be an ash form. No, but you, oh wait, I'm so confused. You take, like they take the ashes and they turn it into a diamond, so right. it looks like a diamond. Yeah, it's but not I, I no, I don't think that the wearable bones would be turned to ashes first. Uh, oh, that yeah, no, that'd be weird. I guess that'd be weird. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Maybe we just don't see it yet. Maybe uh, this is going to be the next big fashion trend because that business of turning ashes into uh, rings and diamonds, that is a huge multi-million dollar business. It goes on all over the country now. And I'm wondering, maybe Kim Kardashian is on to the next one, right? Maybe she's on to this next trend. It's ridiculous. I mean, you know, it's like to to work as a... You know, to work in the death industry is a great job because you can't even afford to bury anyone today. It's like $12,000 just to, you know, uh, Well, you're right. You're right. And there's a reason. We've done whole segments on this. There's a reason that uh, I think by 2040, something like 60% of the the American public is going to be cremated. And I I was, you know, together with some friends a week or two ago. And I was surprised that uh, the overwhelming majority of folks around this table that we were at said, for all different reasons, that they were all planning on getting cremated. So there is a movement towards cremation, and one of the key factors driving that is the expense of dying. It's uh, yeah, it's you'll, you'll leave the family, uh, you know, you'll leave your family members broke uh, when you die. It's, it's true. It's yeah, it's true, John. I mean, who can afford to die anymore? Right. It's getting cheaper and cheaper to live. Loretta is in Brooklyn. Hello, Loretta. Hi, good morning. Morning. Um, about wearing someone's bones, I certainly hope that doesn't take off. Uh, it, it's not just weird. It seems morbid to me. It's disrespectful. 
Same here. Well, look, in the case of uh, Kim Kardashian and her mother, the mother's still alive, right? So she's not dead. And if uh, I guess the way it would work is she was hoping to take some of the the hip bone from her mother's hip replacement surgery and then turn that into some sort of jewelry. I don't know. It didn't say on the show what sort of jewelry she was looking to turn it into. But um, I, I can't understand the appeal, honestly. Well, I had my gallbladder removed some years ago. And what did you have that made into, a necklace or something? Well, somebody told me I could get the gallstones and, you know, do something. Uh, and, and they told me, no, it goes to pathology, and they're ugly. You don't want to see them. They're not pretty. Yeah. So I, I let it go. So you didn't, you didn't have them made into jewelry or anything like that? They told me it goes to pathology, and there's nothing pretty about gallstones. Yeah, right. I'm with with you. You know, I remember when William Shatner, about 16 years ago, had his kidney stone removed. He sold it for $25,000 with the money going to a housing charity. And I'm the biggest William Shatner fan there is. I cannot imagine the life for the life of me wanting to purchase his kidney stone. And as as much as I like you, Loretta, I wouldn't want to purchase your gallbladder stone either. Well, as far as being cremated, I'm having no burial or cremation. Uh, uniform body donation. Uh, if acceptable at the time of my death, all my organs will be harvested. My skin can go to burn victims. And what's left? We'll go to the med students for research. Well, that's that's very admirable, Loretta. That's great. And I think that's something that uh, that folks should certainly consider. And it's a great way to help a lot of people. Thank you, Loretta. Um, and by the way, I'll remind you, as you make your end of life arrangements, seriously consider putting me in your will. Uh, because, look, who, who's keeping you company in the middle of the night? Is it those people that are not calling you that call themselves your relatives? No, I am. Yeah, so how about a little something for the effort as uh, they say in the movie Caddyshack? I've decided, I think, that uh, I am going to donate uh, my body to um, Matt Blaze when I die and with the instructions that he get a baseball cap and sunglasses and do like the, they did in the movie Weekend at Bernie's and pretend I'm still alive hosting the show for like a good two or three weeks. And see who notices and who doesn't notice. I'm absolutely going to do that. Yeah, why not? Right? I'll, I'll sit behind you with a microphone exactly. Exactly. and do my best. Good morrow, everyone. There you go, right? Impersonation. Well, just say I have laryngitis or something right. and I'm there, you know. I got a call today. Right, exactly. There you go. 800 um, Hey, those of you that are holding, keep holding. We're going to talk demons in just a bit. With M.R. Gorga, who is a demon expert, and a lot of you may think this is the stuff of horror movies, the stuff of science fiction. Well, did you know The Exorcist is based on a true story? And the folks that made The Exorcist reported all sorts of weird things happening when they made it. And you may not know this. But there are all sorts of instances of demonic possession. We're going to get into it with M.R. Gorga straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Morano. 
other side of midnight presents the Midnight Files. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. And um, we're approaching Halloween. And if you're like me, you probably enjoy watching a horror movie or two, especially around this time of the year, right around Halloween. And there's some great, great Halloween films that deal with the subject of demons and demonic possession. I don't think there's a better film, for instance, than... The Exorcist. And you remember the very dramatic scene in The Exorcist when the priest is trying to rid this little girl, Reagan, of this this demonic spirit that's possessing her. Creature of God! Begun in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. By this sign of the Holy Cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit. David. Amen. God, defender of the human race. When I was younger, I thought The Exorcist was a scary film. I thought it was fiction. And it's true there are a lot of fictional elements to it. The Exorcist is based on a true story, and the number of exorcisms that are being done not only by the Catholic Church but a number of other churches has skyrocketed in recent years. And and I've interviewed exorcists on this show, people that have spent a lot of time, very very serious folks, not folks that are looking to uh, sell their story to um, make a movie, folks that are really concerned about folks that are possessed by demons. Now, it's interesting. William Friedkin, who directed that film, The Exorcist, was on another radio program on uh, AM 970 in New York with Michael Riedel, a Broadway show, and they were talking about how the last few popes, including the current one, have started to at least talk more openly about exorcism But listen to what William Friedkin says. And Friedkin has studied this issue a bit himself, obviously, since his involvement in the picture. Listen to what Friedkin says. Uh, But before the last three popes, uh, there were not too many people high in the church who were promoting this idea because it isn't always successful. Uh, no, when, when, it, when it goes wrong, it's... Well, they don't want people to think, you know, there's guys walking around out there who did not have successful exorcisms, but that's the truth. Think about that, that there could be people 
possessed by demons or the devil that there were attempted exorcisms of that have failed. At least that's how the church views it. Now, maybe some people don't buy into this. The more research I've done into this, the more I've come to believe that demons are very real. And there is nobody that has studied this issue more than M.R. Gorga. He is a former copywriter and journalist and the author of the book Demons Among Us, Shocking Real-Life Stories from the Paranormal. Mr. Gorga, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks. Great to be back. So uh, let's begin with where I think a lot of listeners uh, begin in thinking about this subject. Are demons real? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely real. 100% real. So, you know, the reason why people don't think they're real is because, you know, they operate in secrecy and in darkness and in the uh, behind the veil of the paranormal. So, but just because you can't see them does not mean they're that real. I've, I've never seen the wind before, but I've felt its effects. And it's the same thing with this uh, demonic realm. So let's uh, let's define our terms. Uh, if we're going to use the term demons a lot for the next few mean, minutes, let's make sure people understand what we mean by that. What are demons? Uh, demons are fallen angelic beings of a highly, intelli- highly intelligent uh, uh, form, um, and they're they're highly cunning, highly manipulative, skilled at lying, and um, have all kinds of supernatural powers because they're uh, they're they're still angels. Where do demons come from? Uh, demons come from uh, they were expelled from heaven. Uh, so they these are we're talking about demons. These are the angels that had. Uh, joined in a rebellion with Lucifer uh, against God because Lucifer was exalted because of his uh, his beauty. Uh, and he thought that he himself could be God, so he led a rebellion, uh, which didn't turn out so well because him and a third of the angels uh, got, got cast out of heaven uh, to the earth. Uh, and one myth is that, um, you know, he's in hell and he's, uh, he's ruling demons in hell and torturing in hell and ruling amongst the fires, but uh, they were cast to the earth and they believe this is their home. I mentioned the film The Exorcist uh, because I think it's a good starting point because so many people have seen the film and can relate to the events in that film. What does your research tell you about the real life, uh, the real life demonic possession that was the basis for that motion picture? Well, I believe that was uh, as actually the, the act it was actually a boy. Uh, I think they, and so they, they, they turned that, uh, they changed that role into a female, into Regan. But the exorcist itself, it was, um, you know, it was a, that was a phenomenon. I mean, up until that point in film, nothing like that has ever been seen. And so when Freakin put out that film, it even surprised him that it was going to be, um, you know, as successful as it was. Um, and people, it, it literally scared the bejesus out of people. People were, have never been exposed to anything like that. So they were literally people who were running out of the theater. Um, they had smelling salts on hand because people were passing out. Um, and so uh, it really created this 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 dark phenomenon in film. Um, you know, and that carries over into the films that we see today. 
The Conjuring, Emily Rose, and things of that nature. Uh, there's a real dark fascination with the with demonic and demon possession. Would you say what if you had to pick? What would you say is the most realistic motion picture that deals with the subject of demons, including all the ones that you just mentioned? Yeah, there's a couple, and they they all have some element that's right. Okay, so um, I I think the right with Anthony Hopkins. Uh, gets it right. I think that was actually taken off Father of Morty of, in Italy. He's done mm-hmm. over, he's done thousands and thousands of uh, um, exorcisms, and I talk about him in the book as well. Um, and so, uh, but it was more like you know people would come, and uh, it wasn't that they weren't successful in the exorcism as you were speaking of earlier, but it just would take more sessions or so for these people to come back in order to, you know, drive out certain specific uh, demons or, or principalities, whether they were possessed or oppressed or harassed. Um, and so some people, I think, were just kind of, you know, going back, you know, back to them for like months at a time. Um, and so uh, so I think the right gets it uh, in that regard um Pretty accurate, and then there's a scene in the con in um, in the Conjuring, the first one, and the way it's a basement scene, and the the mother is fully possessed. Now the devil had completely overtaken this woman's form, and you could see the angular lines um, in her face, almost like a another face within her face, and when you see these possessed. You know the uh, person with a possessor of a demon. The lines in their 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 face get very very sharp, and very you know just a very sharp jagged kind of lines to their face, and their the whole face kind of changes. Uh, and so uh, in that scene, uh, the Conjuring got it right, um, and then uh an exorcist got it right in regards to they are very vile very vulgar um they hate christ they hate anything that has to do with holiness or anything of that nature or righteousness uh so in that regard they they did get it right and uh so i think each of these uh oh emily rose is another one too um speaking in in various languages um, and, uh, I think they even had her like eating bugs and stuff at one point. And that's, that's, that's true too. They take away your appetite. I've read stories where, you know, they had people like eating sand or they, they, they starve these people to death. They just won't, they just have a power that won't let them eat. And so these people like shrivel to, to nothing because the, these demons won't let them eat. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, so I think a, a lot of these movies have, have, uh, parts and portions of it of it right we're talking with mr gorga his book is a must read if you're interested in demons and demonic possessions it's called demons among us shocking real life stories from the paranormal tell me how common are demons are people likely to encounter a demon on their train ride to work, or is it, the, is it the kind of thing that people are likely to encounter once in a lifetime, or is it the kind of thing that one in every thousand people is likely to encounter? Based on your research, how common are demon encounters? Well, I just want to say that uh, demon possession is actually the rare uh, form. I mean, it's the most extreme form, and there is an uptick of, of these incidences happening around the world. 
Um, and how I like to say it is like the the demonic realm or these demonic spirits um, are operating and functioning in the world around us behind the scenes. Um, when I say like a third of the angels fell, I don't know how many that was, and you know we don't get a real count, but it's 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 a phenomenal un- amount of <laughs> of of angels or demonic spirits that were that were cast out. So I think they outnumber the population of Earth um, by by multitudes and multitudes, uh, and they function behind the scenes and. Um, and their goal is to harass and to, to steal, to kill, and destroy uh, an individual's life. Now, uh, as I said, demon possession was the extreme form, but what we don't really have ever, most have never thought about is the everyday functioning of spirits, meaning that there are various spirits uh, that function um, by a role or what they do, meaning that there's spirits of fear. Uh, spirits of suicide, spirits of um, greed, and spirits of depression, um, spirits of uh, lust and pornea. Uh, in the Greek, that's where we get our word pornography from. Um, it's spirits of uh, pharmakoi, where we get our words pharmaceuticals from. It's actually that word in the Greek means sorceries. And so we have these functions of these, these spirits functioning um, in the world every day around people's lives. And, um, you know, so some people are actually influenced by them without them even knowing, it. you know, cases of severe depression or anxiety or, you know, um, uh, drug, drug usage and things of that nature. People are affected by them without them even knowing it. How can someone recognize a demon encounter, whether we're talking demon uh, possession, which I know you said is the is the most extreme and most uncommon form of a demon encounter, or uh, some they use the term demons that may be in someone's own life that lead them to uh, aberrant behavior like drug use or anything else that you mentioned. How does someone know if there's a demon that's responsible for that behavior or the behavior that a loved one is engaged in? Right. Well, there's a couple of ways where uh, a demon can can kind of enter into um, into someone's life, and a lot of that has to do with um, occult practices. If they're going to spiritists, or if they're going to palm readers and fortune tellers, or necromancers who call up the dead and say, "Oh yeah, I hear your your mom's coming in and she's telling me this." Uh, so these are actually avenues that open up the spiritual dimension, or uh, give them access and entry points into your life. Um, and then it opens the door for them to harass. And usually it starts by, you know, harassment and then a, a, an oppression and then the most extreme form is possession. And uh, people have uh, have been on other shows and people have called in and said, I, I have uh, a harassing demon that shows up and it's trying to cut my hair because it wants to clip her hair for some reason for some sort of maybe like an incantation or whatever. And then I have other people who say I have these poltergeists in their home. They're destroying my home. And this has been happening for eight years. So, you know, when you get these, these signs of 
hauntings and what people would deem hauntings and harassments. That's obvious, you know. Um, but then you, you know, it takes a, a sharper eye to really kind of understand if, you know, you may be under the influence of something and not know it. If you're, you know, if you are um, a, a really greedy person and want money at all costs and are willing to, you know, step on anyone's head to get it, well, you may be, you know, you may have an influence of a of a spirit driving you, uh, and 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 the like. And the same thing is like with anger. If you have you know, a, a real hot anger issue, you may actually have something behind all that driving. Um, but it's, it's, it's a fine line to, to, to actually tell. You have to do some inward digging, you know, and, uh, but, you know, there are those extreme forms of when, you know, something enters your house and it starts, you know, really messing up your house and it's attacking you at night and things of that nature. In your book, you deal with the first fully recorded eyewitness account of demonic possession in American history. This is something that occurred even prior to the Salem witch trials. Uh, Give us the Reader's Digest version as to what happened. What was the first recorded account of demonic possession on this continent? Right. Well, when I found the story, it was so eye-opening and horrifying. I I felt that it had to make uh, the book. Uh, the the story takes place in 1671 between his um, uh, town minister uh, in New England and his live-in maid or maid servant, who was 16 years old. And this this young girl, she started exhibiting some forms of strange behavior that made the minister's eyebrows raise, and but so he just kind of watched for a couple of weeks and then it got so strange he started to um he took to his journal this is why it's the first fully recorded account because he took to his journal and he started writing a blow by blow of what was happening uh to this young maid um which he called uh atrocities and afflictions um and this first journal entry is very interesting Because that date was Monday, October 30th, 1671. So it kind of ties into the, the, you know, the whole, you know, Halloween thing. But uh, he, she started exhibiting some, some, some signs and, and then it just started progressing further and further. Um, And the mystery behind it was what was her relationship with, with the devil? Was she in league with the devil? And did she sign the devil's book? And so as we go throughout the story, she starts revealing more and more and more um, of her relationship. And uh, she was she had very, very, very severe attacks uh, against her that would last um, seizures attacks that would last, you know, uh, days. Uh, She had um, tried to throw herself into the fire. At one point, she tried to kill the minister in his sleep. Um, so she was being severely um, affected by um, by the devil, and um, and but and so the reason why it's so interesting is that he literally wrote a blow by blow of what was happening. Wow, uh, that is absolutely incredible. I want to encourage everybody if they're interested in the subject, check out the book. Demons Among Us, Shocking Real-Life Stories from the Paranormal. It's available on Amazon. 
and a lot of other places where books are available. Its author is M.R. Gorga, G-O-R-G-A. We have not even scratched the surface of uh, the subject of demonology and all the other stories that are in your book. You've got to come back soon, and we'll, we'll follow up on this. Absolutely. All right. Uh, M.R. Gorga, if you want to comment on any portion of my discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. Talk about a subject that can give you the chills. Wow. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. An old cowboy went riding out one dark and windy day Up on a ridge he rested as he went along his way When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw and up the cloudy draw Their brands were still on fire and The great Johnny Cash If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program or who the artist is uh, just join our Facebook group Morano Radio Fans and Haters that's M O R A N O Radio Fans and Haters and uh, by the way, if you go to that Facebook group, Matt Blaze has just posted in there a brand new sort of uh, movie poster um, mock-up, like a old-school horror movie poster uh, featuring our show and the staff from our show, including our resident alien, Prometheus. And it's really neat. Uh, they they actually they did this for a bunch of the, the shows on the network, and I think they did the nicest job with ours. It's really like out of a 1950s, 1960s science fiction movie. So uh, my thanks to our whole Red Apple um, design team, Joe and Gina and everybody else that's involved with this. Uh, you could see it. I think it's really cool uh, by joining the Facebook group, uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. I think if you go to the WABC Radio store, there's all sorts of cool stuff that's emblazoned with this poster. And you could actually just order the poster itself, I believe, so which would be a, a nice addition to any wall. That's at WABCRadioStore.com. That's at WABCRadioStore.com. So my thanks to everybody that had a role in, uh, in putting this together. But it's really, really well done. They did a, a good job with it, and uh, they, you could see all of our faces in, in this as well. So uh, I, thought it was, uh, I thought it was really cool. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to comment, by the way, you hear this? My bell has been restored. My bell is back, and um, you know where it was? Well, right when I was asking Matt Blaze yesterday if anybody had seen it, it was six inches from him, right there. Blah 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 blah. Same room, right in the control room. You actually just look around, left, right, and you would have seen. But um, I guess uh, we're starting to see uh, Matt Plays has got his own agenda here, right? Doesn't want to share any any birthday information that he has. 
I didn't know you were moonlighting at the Super 8. With not, that bell. not the point. Not the point. I asked you, has anyone seen the bell? I didn't see the bell. Right. All you had to do is look to your left. It's right there. I looked. Didn't see it. I, I don't know. I'm uh-huh. not sure. I'm not sure of the level of looking that was present. But um, well, we're happy to have the bell back, so I don't have to order a new one. And, uh, you know, on the plus side, you want to talk about an honest group of people. I had a nice pen, one of the pens that I bought. I left that here yesterday, a nice doctor grip, which writes well. I left it in here yesterday, still here, and I was able to reunite with that pen. So, hey, uh, we're going to talk Ukraine with Colonel Douglas McGregor coming up next hour. Until then, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We've been speaking a lot about Liz Truss, the former prime minister of the United Kingdom. And it's true that uh, her tenure as prime minister can only be described as short. Well, the new UK prime minister, Rishi Sunak, Rishi Sunak, is an interesting person. He's the first prime minister of color. He's the first, I believe, the first Hindu prime minister. A lot of firsts. And so far, one of the descriptions that fits him is short. Um, a lot of a question that has been on a lot of people's minds and discussed on social media is the new prime minister's height. According to GQ magazine. He stands at five foot six inches. While this makes him only two inches shorter than former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, his slight figure combined with his height has become the source of a whole bunch of memes on Twitter. Now, um, obviously, height is not something that you can do something about. I am short. I think I'm about five seven. Uh, five, seven and a half, right around there. But, um, you know, I'm right right around there. I'm, I'm no taller than 5'8". That's about the tallest I could possibly be. I might even be as short as 5'6", right? I, I am short. This is one of those things where I actually try to avoid measuring myself because I don't want to fully realize how short I actually am. And I know it's the silly thing. But it's almost like the old Wiley e. Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons. You don't uh, fall off the cliff until you look down. And in my brain, I know I'm short, but I don't really want to know how short I am because I'm concerned that this could affect my stature and how I carry myself. And um, one of the things, you know, whenever I show a photograph of myself with someone, one of there's always someone on Facebook that comments. Wow, I can't believe how short Frank is. You know, when uh, Bernard McGurk died, I put up a photo of me with uh, Bernie and Sid, and I posted it on Facebook. 
whole bunch of people say, wow, I had no idea how short Frank is. And, you know, that seems to be a common theme. And let me be very clear. I am very short and I'm very resentful of that because I've, I've been waiting for a growth spurt my entire life. My brother is uh, my uh, father is six foot two. My two brothers are over six feet tall. Both very tall, and uh, I am short. I drew the short end of the stick on that one. Pun very much intended. So um, it's interesting. I really didn't know anything about this new UK prime minister until a week ago. And now, now that I know he's short, I find myself rooting for this guy. I find myself be, becoming a supporter of this guy. I find myself in short person solidarity with the new prime minister. You know, it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever seen Curb Your Enthusiasm, but there's a, an episode on Curb Your Enthusiasm that has to do with the solidarity that bald people have with one another and the solidarity that fat people have with one another. And um, for instance, Larry David is thinking of opening a restaurant. Now, Larry David is bald and he really wants a bald brother to work as his chef in the restaurant. And a guy comes for the interview to interview to be the head chef at this restaurant. The fella is bald. Well, need you guess as to how this interview turned out for the Bald chef wannabe. Larry David. Hi, Phil Dunlap here for the chef's position. Oh. Hi. Hi. Thank you. It. Thank you very much. Ah. 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 Hey, you hey, look at you. Look at you. Yeah, look at you. Wow. Yeah. When did you start losing it? Ah. Uh, Wow, I started losing when I was 15. 15? Wow, yeah. earlier than me, yeah. yeah. a little bit earlier. And yeah. I, I actually like it. Huh. Yeah, me too. Yeah, just a couple of little sunscreen on, it's fine. Yeah, a lot of sunscreen, right? <laughs> exactly. I know, you can't go outside without the sunscreen. Well, exactly. No convertibles. No convertibles. Oh, God, I hate oh. that. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. you have to wear a hat if you're going to wear, uh, be in a convertible. Yeah. And then you look like you're trying to hide something. Oh, well, that's what they do, these guys with the hats, don't yeah. they? Yeah. They, they wear it all the time. And they'll meet a girl or something, and then they'll show up on a date. What are they going to do? They're going to take the hat off, wear it. They have a terrible decision. Right, right. And then the girl's going to be like, I-, I didn't know you were bald. Yeah, yeah. Right. You misrepresented yourself. Exactly. Uh, you're, you're a, a liar. Man. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Minoxidil? No. You? No. Every day for the rest of your life, you oh have Oh, my God. Some drops and everything? Yeah, they got to massage in. Yeah. Oh. So there's something psychologically going wrong. Psychologically wrong with them? What about exactly. the transplant people? Huh? I hate those people. Toupee? Hmm? Huh? Oh, no, absolutely not. Those guys, they should kill those guys. Exactly. I mean, I'm mean, i surprised Hitler didn't round up the toupee people. Yeah? I mean, if I'm going to be a sick megalomaniac right. to round up people who I hated, they would be on my list. I would say, get, get the toupee people. Absolutely. I'd have my henchmen going around, tugging at people's hair. If it comes off... Bolden, come with me. Yeah. Ach, Bolden. So, I feel that same way about short people. My fellow short people, we are a movement, and I am, I am in solidarity with this new British prime minister. And I'm curious, if you're a short person, you know, look, life's not easy being a short person. Look, there are tougher things. I mean, 
there are folks that are blind, there are folks that are deaf, there are folks that have uh, uh, are walking around without limbs, uh, there are folks that are uh, paraplegic. That is all much, much worse than being short. But a lot of times you don't look good in pictures. A lot of times, especially if you're a guy, you're, you know, dating a woman or married to a woman, especially if she's wearing heels, looks like you have to get on a step stool to take a photograph with her or dance with her. It's, uh, I don't know, you, you have this perpetual feeling of embarrassment and inadequacy. And that's why I'm really glad, and maybe this is where the Napoleonic complex comes from, although Napoleon actually wasn't as short as most people think, but um, maybe this is what drives a lot of short people to the world of politics and government. And I am with, like I think a lot of other short people, I am standing with the new prime minister, although you may not even know that I'm standing. 800-848-9222. My fellow short people, are you standing with me? Albeit not necessarily standing that tall. What do you think? Does being does the fact that this guy is short make you like him more? Makes me like him more. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Jeffrey in Queens. Hello, Jeffrey. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Great. Wow. 65 years old. Story of my life. Okay, I'm not that short. I'm five nine and a half, but I'm not five ten, and that was the bane of my existence. And so, a couple of things like basketball playing, where I was too short as a kid, but then I, I, I became a great jumper, and then later on in life, I became a weightlifter. So I put on a physique. So it didn't really matter, but I was not in the six one, six two, that category. You know, those men, those. Uh, let's call them the the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who are the bankers of the world. They're six three and more. Okay, I mean they're the man's man, and I was not that, you know. But then again, Frank, the Napoleonic complex—that's a you know you know the, a funny parallel. That parallel, a funny phenomenon, phenomenon exists, like like in the world of immigration, the last in look look down on the next group in. So we had five. Whether you're five seven or five nine and a half. We look down upon, as opposed to solidarity, the men who are the rulers of the world, who are five feet tall. And you know, I, who's that? You know, there are a couple of guys in American politics the last couple of years. They're, it's like they're five foot or five foot one. Come on, Frank. You, you, okay, you could say it's solidarity, or it could be we then look down down upon. So to well, speak, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think you, you. I was with you till the till the end there, Jeff. You, I think you lost me. When you say the people that are in politics that are five one or five two or so forth, what, what do you mean? You you think we're looking down at those people? No, no, no. I'm saying you you made the case for solidarity with them, and I'm going to say it's akin to analogous to the last immigrant group that d- doesn't embrace the next group but looks down upon them. I see, I so, see. Right, but, right, but right. the next, so, um, well, so right. what would that I'm mean? Robert Robert Reich, for example. Okay. Right, right. Okay, so I would like Robert Reich more because he's short. Well, you're saying you would, but okay. Okay, that point aside, let's say with the first point was that it is amazing how some of the most powerful people in the world are not five seven; they're five one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Who else? Who else is that short? Well, I'm just, I, I, I thought of one that came to mind, but you know there are many others. Well, um, okay. Well, thank oh. you, uh, thank oh. you, Jeffrey. 
800-848-9222. Look, I'm not saying if there's someone whose uh, politics you detest, you you would embrace them because they're short. But all things being equal, I want to pick the short guy, right? Because I feel like the tall guys get all the breaks, you know, especially when it comes to being picked for – leadership positions, for winning elections. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that I like about Tom Cruise. I hear he's short. So um, Kim Kardashian, I think, is also is also short. A lot of great short people out there. So 800-848-9222. Uh, we're going to talk with Colonel Douglas McGregor in a minute. Uh, Jim in Aston has been holding. Uh, let me let him be heard. Hello, Jim. Hey Frank, originally called about your we're talking about your exercise, but I'm I'm five eight and it doesn't really bother me. My father was five eight and he just he was a power lifter, boxer, very tough man. I never considered myself short of five eight. I had a best friend who was six four and when we got older going to clubs, it was funny, the tall girls really flocked to tall guys. They want a tall guy. I know, it's annoying. Like, oh. It's terrible. But I, I never liked tall girls. I always liked short girls. Well, any girl I ever had was always five foot, you know, in that range. You know, I just like shorter girls. But, um, yeah, I, I – but I tell you what, any experience – like I drive tractor trailer for a living, and you have DOT cops that inspect the trucks. Any really bad experiences I've had with cops – I'm always nice to them. I, I'm friends with a lot of cops. And uh, But with short guys, they got the hand on the gun. They're barking well, at you. Know, you, know, you, you broke up there you a second, you Jim. You broke up there. You, all your right. bad experiences with cops, you said they're tall or they're short? Short, short, short. Interesting. The little men would have gone little men would have gone in a badge. Oh, I and hate to hear I, that. I've I've never had good I've never had bad experience. I've had some bad experiences with tall cops. But usually if a guy had a good life, he's tall, he's good looking, I, when I like, deal with him with a cop, they've usually been okay. You know, Jim, you, know, like, you, you actually, you stole my thunder completely because that's what I was going to say. What do the tall people have to be upset about? They get all the girls, they get picked for all the sporting teams, they get to win all the elections, and um, they get to well, look good in pictures with people. And I mean, unless you're freakishly tall, like 6'9", or something, like de Blasio height, or something like that. But, um... I mean, of course the tall people are going to be nice. And it makes me resent them even more. I want to see some flawed tall people. All right. uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, he's probably tall. We'll talk with him about the Ukraine situation in just a moment. 800-848-9222 if you want to talk about uh, anything we've covered today. Demonic possession to height and everything in between. 800-848-9222. Colonel McGregor, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. Uno. He's your numero uno. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Fighting soldiers from the sky. 
Fearless men who jump and die Men who mean just what they say The brave men of the Green Beret This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One of my favorite people to talk to on military affairs has been Douglas McGregor. Douglas McGregor is the kind of person that is almost out of a Greek myth. He is a warrior philosopher. He is a brilliant man who has worn our country's uniform, who has bravely served in battle, and has demonstrated leadership time and again. He is a retired U.S. Army colonel, a former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense, an author, and a senior fellow at the American Conservative. A whole bunch of other things as well, but we only have a four-hour program. We're not going to list his whole resume. Uh, But at a time when it seems like the world is inching closer and closer, literally, to nuclear war, and yet we have fewer and fewer people that seem to care about this incredible conflict in Eastern Europe, which has the potential to be the same sort of a powder keg as what led to World War One. I can't think of anyone that I'd rather talk to at these trying times than Colonel McGregor. Colonel, it is always a treat to talk with you. Thank you for joining me. Sure. By the way, I need to make sure my Greek friends hear this intro. (laughs) They're going to be ecstatic. Uh, Colonel, I think a lot of people have probably heard our previous conversations, and I think a lot of folks know that when it comes to foreign policy and military affairs, my view of the situation is pretty close to where you are, and I largely defer to your expertise on a lot of this stuff. But for people who have not heard your take on the the Russia-Ukraine situation— The bipartisan consensus in Washington has sort of been the following. Russia was eager for territorial expansion. Russia was eager to rebuild the Soviet Union, to restore the states that were formerly part of the USSR. Vladimir Putin is this sort of James Bond villain that's bloodthirsty and that has no qualms about doing things like bombing maternity wards, and he will do whatever it takes to satiate his bloodlust. And Ukraine, uh, their Democrat peace-loving neighbor right next door, didn't attack anybody, didn't do anything, and now they are bravely fighting against this war of Russian aggression. Before we get into the latest of what's happening now and, more importantly, where we go from here, explain to folks why that conventional wisdom is flawed. Oh, boy. Uh, I love that uh, depiction because it's accurate. In fact, that narrative is the essentially the theme of the information campaign. It's been running all over the Western world now for months. Uh, The truth is that uh, the Russians in eastern Ukraine have been living as second- or third-class citizens inside Ukraine, certainly since uh, 2014. They weren't very happy before that uh, because the Ukrainians uh, wanted them to effectively become Ukrainian and renounce any connection whatsoever to Russia, linguistic culture, and so forth. This was an issue that came up repeatedly. The Minsk Accords were devised to address it, uh, to essentially promise that the Russians living inside Ukraine would have equal rights, be treated treated, uh, equally before the law. 
and that uh, there would be a cessation in the Ukrainian attacks on the so-called breakaway republics, uh, that these republics could have their own language and, and so forth. And the Ukrainians signed this thing. Putin signed it. Uh, the Germans, uh, the French, uh, were heavily engaged in all of this. We supported it, but ultimately none of it happened. There was no effort to address any of it. And then in the meantime, over the last eight, eight and a half years since the regime came to power in, in Kiev that is ultra-nationalist in character, we have been pouring money and equipment and military assistance on every level into eastern Ukraine to build this Ukrainian army that would eventually retake control of not just the autonomous republics, but would attack and reconquer Crimea. We ended up building the largest army in NATO, uh, 400,000 plus standing forces, uh, another 200,000 plus uh, that were ready reserves, and then again behind that a larger National Guard. Effectively, by the time the uh, Russians decided to intervene, there were almost 700,000 people on active duty in the Ukrainian armed forces, armed to the teeth with the best Western weapons that, that we could afford for them. And uh, the Russians essentially saw them as building up to an attack. They hadn't honored any of the uh, stipulations under the agreement of the Minsk Accords. The outcome was the Russian intervention. But the initial intervention, as Mr. Putin shaped it, was designed to minimize the loss of life because from the very beginning they said, after all, these people in Ukraine are fellow Orthodox Slavs. We're not going in there to kill lots of people. We don't want to destroy lots of infrastructure. So on a front of almost four or 500 miles, you had small packets of Russian troops that moved stealthily into the country with strict orders not to kill or destroy uh, unless it was absolutely necessary. And this, of course, was a disaster because instead of signaling uh, what Mr. Putin wanted to signal, which was the readiness of the Russians to talk the readiness to negotiate with uh, Kiev or Kiev. Instead, you've got the response that, well, the Russians are weak, they're stupid, they don't know what they're doing, and they actually encouraged uh, tremendous resistance from the regime in Kiev. And so you've got this battle in all these towns and cities where the Ukrainians set themselves up into do-or-die defensive positions, and the war began. And this dragged on for a few months, and it's it's now entered a very different phase because finally, by the middle of April, I think, President Putin recognized nobody's going to negotiate. Uh, it didn't work. I think he recognized he'd made a strategic error. And uh, what you have now is a, an occupation force in all of the Russian-speaking areas with the plan of uh, holding the holding these places, defending them against relentless uh, Ukrainian counterattacks and bleeding the Ukrainian army white in the process, while the uh, rest of the force is mobilized and built up for major offensive operations, which is really what most of us that looked at the Russians and know how they operate expected back in February. All right. The big question that a lot of folks have been asking, wherever they were on this conflict at the very beginning, leaning more towards the Ukrainian direction, leaning more towards the Russian direction, or like I think a lot of people hoping for some diplomatic solution somewhere in between, 
a lot of folks are concerned about the increasing talk of nuclear weapons. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what the United States would do and what the United States should do in the event that Russia uses nuclear weapons. We heard from General Petraeus, the former CIA director, who says that um, the U.S. would destroy Russia's troops if Putin uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine. If you were still advising the Pentagon these days, what would you suggest the American reaction should be? in the event that Putin used some sort of conventional or tactical nuclear weapon? First of all, Mr. Putin's made it very clear the Russians will absolutely not use nuclear weapons under any circumstances unless they are attacked by another country that uses nuclear weapons against them. This has been true from the beginning. It's been stated over and over and over again. And we routinely misquote take things out of context to try and convince people that Putin wants to use nuclear weapons. Nothing could be further from the truth. You've got to stop and consider where you're talking about the use of a nuclear weapon, whether it's a low-yield, five-kiloton, so-called tactical nuclear weapon, just a little smaller than the Hiroshima bomb, or you're talking about large-scale intercontinental ballistic missiles. You know, we would not use those on the borders of our country. Mr. Putin is not going to use those things on the borders of his country. And he said so over many, many, many times over the years, specifically about the Baltic states. It's ridiculous. Under no circumstances would we do that. We are the ones that have been fabricating this lie that the Russians are prepared to do it. And they're not. And there are no indicators from the intelligence world that anything that we associate with the readiness to employ nuclear weapons has been undertaken by the Russians. None. The danger right now is primarily the following. There, Mr. Zelensky has been after a nuclear weapon for a long time, long before the war broke out. And once the war got started, there were always whispers of uh, an interest in a nuclear weapon that would be a, a dirty bomb. In other words, taking spent uranium fuel from a conventional nuclear power plant, not uh, the kind of plant that has plutonium or weapons-grade fuel, And uh, detonating a bomb that would spread this around and contaminate an area, cause a lot of radiation sickness, uh, and operate effectively as a bluff, uh, convince people that something nuclear had exploded when it really wasn't weapons-grade uranium, but enough to uh, deter your enemy from going into a particular area, forcing him to go around or something else. Then three weeks ago in the Ukrainian media, there was an announcement uh, from an unnamed spokesman from the Ukrainian government that Mr. Zelensky as president had ordered a group of Ukrainian scientists and engineers in Kiev to build such a bomb. Uh, Initially, people were skeptical, but within the last uh, 10 days or so, there has been increasing evidence that this could be real. And that was the reason that the Russian defense minister called the French defense minister, the Turkish defense minister, and ultimately spoke with the secretary of defense on the phone, expressing concern about this. The outcome was that, uh, you know, you got this commitment from the Western defense ministers that uh, they, they are not supportive of that, that they oppose the use of any nuclear weapon. And then another sort of warning against the warning to the Russians that you better not use anything, which of course, again, The Russians have made very clear that they won't. And the final point is this. 
You don't need nuclear weapons now to be effective in war and to do enormous damage. Mm. We have precision guidance. This used to be a monopoly. Back in 1991, during Desert Storm, we had a monopoly on precision. Today, everybody's got it. And if you look at the strikes that occurred just a few days ago, these massive strikes all across Ukraine, they were precision strikes by missiles, loitering munitions, artillery. It was exactly the kind of thing that we are equally capable of doing and have done in the past. It was a signal that the Russians have got the same technology that we do and can do just as much damage. So you don't need a nuclear weapon, which was always designed to destroy a large area, because you've got the precision that you can go after what is really important to you in the infrastructure. In the case of the Russians, they went after the power grid. And now you have no electricity in Ukraine. Mm. You can't move the trains because you have no electricity to move the trains any longer. The only trains that are moving are being pulled by diesel locomotives, and they're being targeted. Uh, So the situation in Ukraine is is ugly. Uh, The standard of living has now dropped off precipitously. And access to water is going to become a problem. These are the things that Putin did not want to do when he went into Ukraine in February and what he resisted doing, even though his commanders insisted, you've got to do this. We need to bring this to a quick end. He did not listen and said, no, we are humane. We are not going to engage in that sort of thing. Well, that's over. We're in a new phase now. And the next phase in November and December, it's you're talking about major offensives along multiple operational axes coming out of Western Russia, out of Southern Ukraine, and out of Belarusia that are going to be devastating. They will crush everything they encounter. Now, the danger is that we, uh, a la Mr. Petraeus's or General Petraeus's comments, may foolishly try to introduce some of our forces into Western Ukraine, thinking that if we do that, we are going to deter the Russians from acting, as I just outlined. And we seem to think that we can drag the Poles and the Romanians with us. The rest of the alliance uh, ostensibly is disinterested. Why? It's why he called it a coalition of the willing to go with us. And that's modeled on what we had in Iraq, the coalition of the willing, because we didn't have French support. We didn't have support from most of the NATO allies. Well, right now, most NATO allies either don't have the forces to send or they have very few or they simply don't want to go. And I would tell you that the vast majority of Europeans are completely disinterested in going to war with Russia because we want to. The exception is Poland and a partial exception appears to be Romania that we'll have to see what happens in the future. But the assumption is those forces could go with us. And the interesting, interesting part of this is we now have uh, reports coming in uh, that near Liman, uh, which was the site of a, a major Ukrainian operation where they lost a lot of troops, they now have large numbers of Polish and Romanian-speaking soldiers in Ukrainian uniform. Now, we knew that we had thousands of Poles in Ukrainian uniform. We knew we had foreigners from various places, mercenaries. But this is the first report that has come in about large numbers of Romanians in mm. Ukrainian uniform. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Colonel Douglas McGregor, retired U.S. Army colonel and a former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. He's an author. He's a senior fellow at the American Conservative. He was President Trump's uh, nominee at one point to be an ambassador. Uh, Colonel, uh, two-part question here. One, since 2014, the annexation of Crimea, 
I have not been able to have a conversation about anyone. Um, when I'm talking so-called foreign policy analysts, other media figures, talk show hosts, rank and file listeners, whomever, without without where where I suggest detente with Russia and a peaceful diplomatic resolution to these hostilities with Russia, where someone does not throw the Neville Chamberlain analogy at me and they say, look, appeasement didn't work with the Nazis. It's not going to work with these guys. The only way to fight back against Russian aggression is through strength. That's the only sort of language that people like Vladimir Putin understand. That part One of my question is why that is not accurate. And part two is the following. It, Ukraine did voluntarily give up its nuclear weapons. So even though uh, Ukraine is not a uh, formal member of NATO, at least not at this point, don't the Western countries and doesn't NATO have at least a moral obligation to defend the Ukrainians if they're invaded, since they did give up their nuclear weapons in the name of peace? Well, let's answer the second one first. No, that's utter nonsense. First of all, the Ukrainians never had nuclear weapons. The nuclear weapons belong to the Soviet armed forces. When Ukraine declared its independence, the Soviet armed forces withdrew from Ukraine and they took the nuclear weapons with them. Do you understand that? That's very important. Ukraine, as an independent country, never had nuclear weapons. I see. So that's the first thing. Second thing, this moral obligation is nonsense. We have no obligation whatsoever in any way, shape, or form to Ukraine. Ukraine is not a treaty ally. It's not part of NATO. We have no obligation to defend it. We have no, as the United States is concerned, no strategic interest, particularly in eastern Ukraine, which is where the war is located. None whatsoever. We have no economic interests, nothing. Uh, We have no history with that country at all. Uh, The bottom line is the the second question is an absolute no, and that's nonsense. It sounds wonderful when you're remote from the reality of war, but it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And it's not something that you ask thousands of Americans to die for, which which is an important aspect of this. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, to go to the first question, I th- you want to repeat just the, in, very quickly what the first one was well, about? Well, it's the uh, – I hear every day the comparison of my philosophy to Neville Chamberlain and uh, – Oh, yeah, the Nazi business. And yeah, why is it. that inaccurate? Why is that inaccurate? Well, first of all, this is, ni- this is not 1936. We're not dealing with a national socialist state that has declared its determination to effectively conquer Europe. Now, the Nazis were never interested in conquering the world. That's nonsense. But they made no bones about it that they were interested in controlling Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals. And uh, Adolf Hitler had written that very clearly in Mein Kampf. And the Nazis, again, were very open about their intentions and where they were headed. This is not the same situation whatsoever. Putin is not some sort of crazy Soviet imperialist revanchist. In fact, he said several times, you know, Anyone who does not regret the dissolution of the Soviet Union has no heart. Anybody in Russia that wants to bring it back has no brain. That's Vladimir Putin. In other words, forget it. And uh, the man that he admires tremendously, Solzhenitsyn, made the point repeatedly, and he, he agrees with it, that the best thing the Russians ever did was to get out of the business of trying to rule people who are not them. In other words, stop ruling large numbers of non-Russians. Let them rule themselves. He feels strongly about that. Uh, 
there's no interest whatsoever in that. So the notion that we're dealing with some sort of deranged, uh, overwrought Nazi thug is, is just crazy, crazy beyond belief. If you're looking for anybody who is sympathetic to the Nazis, they're in eastern Ukraine now fighting for Ukraine. Mm. That's one of the most disturbing features of this whole thing. The last thing that part of the world needs is to go back to the Second World War and to the tragedies that that unfolded, particularly in Ukraine, which probably suffered the largest population loss of any country in the war. And uh, but to see all of these Nazi symbols on Ukrainian uniforms, to hear people, uh, you know, say, saying Zieg Heil and all this kind of business, and the thing that no one here is told are the numbers of Russian soldiers that are tortured and murdered by these Nazis. There's no discussion of the civilian populations of Russians that have been rounded up, handcuffed, and shot in the backs of the heads and dumped into ditches, much as what happened when the Nazis went in with the Ukrainian support and killed Jews. We're not hearing any of that. We're hearing this one story, Russians are raping and murdering. 90% of that is absolutely untrue. The Russian troops have behaved remarkably well, very different from the Russians of the Second World War, much closer to the way the Russians behaved under the Tsar. In fact, if I were going to compare today's Russia to anything in the Russian past, I would say certainly Tsarist Russia in the early part of the 20th century is closer to anything that you see today as opposed to Soviet, the Soviet Union. That is dead. That is gone. And it's not coming back. So I would utterly reject that. We have an interest in peace. That's our one interest. We should be intervening now, right away, before Ukraine is utterly and completely destroyed, because they are being beaten to a pulp. And when you say intervene, you talk about intervene diplomatically to bring about a ceasefire to this situation here. My great fear is that maniacs in Washington will say, well, we'll send our troops in. We'll go into Odessa. We'll go to Lvov. Uh, maybe a little further, and we'll go in with the Poles, we'll go with the Romanians, and the Russians will be deterred. That is not going to deter the Russians, because the Russians have convinced themselves that we are committed to their destruction, and we are allying ourselves with people in Europe, particularly the Poles, who are openly talking about destroying Russia, and have for a long time. So what we're effectively doing is we're creating a nightmare scenario for the Russians, So if we do those things, the Russians are not going to sit quietly by. They'll probably give us two hours to turn around and get out, or we will be considered co-belligerents, and they will destroy us. We're talking about a force of over 700,000 that is building up in various areas around Ukraine in in the Russian armed forces in the Western theater. And that force is going to attack in November and December. And equally important for people to understand is this 300,000-man mobilization has occurred. They're largely integrated. They're trained. But the mobilization has not stopped because the decision was made not to suspend it out of fear that we, in fact, are bent on going to war with Russia. So by January, it is very reasonable to expect that there will be a million men in the field fighting for Russia. 
I was uh, very pleased a day and a half ago to read that 30 progressive Democrats had sent a letter to President Biden urging him to bring about a diplomatic end to this crisis. And they made very clear they were blaming Putin. They were blaming Russia. But given the stakes here, namely nuclear war, we need to do what we can to end this war diplomatically. And it was great to see these progressives acting pretty progressive. That lasted all of one day. These <laughs> These Democrats, these progressive Democrats actually went about retracting their letter, which was pretty neutered to begin with. It was not exactly a, uh, you know, a, a, a line in the sand kind of a letter. It was pretty timid, I would say. And they retracted it within a day. One of the things that we've seen, a report from the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft shows that under under President Biden, the United States has been engaging engaging in far more arms sales to foreign countries than had uh, gone on previously. Additionally, we're seeing a number of your fellow military officers, colonels, generals, uh, and people that were high up in the civilian world in the Pentagon as well, going to work for foreign governments. I'm wondering, do you think that the fact that these four major military defense contractors are getting really wealthy while the stock market is experiencing a roller coaster, they've only seen their stock price go up. And the fact that so many of your former colleagues are also getting rich, is that driving at all this this um, desire to continue hostilities with Russia? Well, it's part of it. And remember that whenever money passes to the Department of Defense and then from the Department of Defense to the five big uh, defense monsters that are that constitute the defense industries, that there are, quote unquote, uh, donations uh, that go into PACs that support the congressmen and the senators that are behind the allocation of the money. In other words, this is a self-licking ice cream cone in Washington. When you look at the hard cash, most of it never leaves the United States. It just changes hands and moves in this Mm. sort of circular fashion. So that does have a big impact. But there's something else at work. You have the ideologues at the top uh, who see Russia as the last obstacle to the destruction of what they perceive to be the civilization that they hate. And that civilization is Western Christian culture. They want to get rid of it. The Russians have steadfastly refused to support same-sex marriage. They've steadfastly refused to open their borders to millions of people from what we call the developing world, particularly from the Middle East and Africa. Uh, The Russians are refusing to sign on for the quote-unquote values that are espoused by the uh, World Economic Forum, the WEF. These places, these things are at stake as far as the ideologues in Washington are concerned. The Congress is, I would be frank with you, the senators, they sign on for whatever promises to reward them financially and politically. Mm. But when you get into the House, very few people know anything about what's happening over there one way or the other. They, They just don't know. And so they are handed narratives. The narrative may come from the Heritage Foundation. It may come from uh, the Brookings Institute. It may come from the American Enterprise Institute. They read and say, oh, okay, well, Russia's terrible. Russia's horrible. They're committing all these crimes. They deserve to be destroyed. None of these people have been to war. 
and I'm including large numbers of these people that, that served in Iraq and Afghanistan that were engaged in fighting very weak and capable fighters, insurgents over the last 20 years. They haven't seen armies in the field. They haven't seen what massive artillery and air power actually can do and how it can murder, kill mm. hundreds of thousands of people. We're talking about high-end conventional warfare on a scale that we have not seen since the Korean War. It will kill large numbers of people. Our forces are not prepared for that. Our forces are not large enough to sustain the casualties and keep fighting. And that's the greatest danger, that if we go in and make ourselves co-belligerents with the Ukrainians in this war with Russia and we take heavy casualties, that's when I fear that people in Washington will say we must respond with nuclear weapons or we will be seen as losing the war. And that's the last thing we want. The danger of someone using a nuclear weapon is not in Moscow. It's in Washington. Mm. Colonel, um, I'm going to have to end it there. I could talk with you all day. I always learn so much whenever we speak. Thank you so much for the time. As always, I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for not only your great insight and your great work and being willing to stay up late and talk with me, but thank you for being willing to withstand the slings and arrows of character assassination that I know have been hauled your way, uh, hurled your way uh, time and again for being willing to simply state your opinion and your honest analysis on this subject and a variety of other subjects. Thank you, Colonel. Sure. Thank you, Frank. If you, want, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. This 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Me and Kitson Satan at home away from home in the black Benz limo with a cellular phone. I'm calling up the posse. It's time to get the ripping. I freaking eat sunroof to keep you suckers tripping. Everybody's looking. If you're jealous, turn around. The AMD kick keeps us closer to the ground. We're getting good grip. A classic song. A hundred years from now, people will still be listening to My Posse's on Broadway. It is a phenomenal entry into the American cultural experience. Now, uh, let me... A couple things here. We're going to get to your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we've covered, including my interview with Colonel McGregor. But let me take you back in time to six days ago when I was telling you about a football pool that I'm in. Speaking of gambling, this is the last thing I'll mention. Um, you know, I, I, I'm in this pool, and this guy, Ed, who listens to this show, I'm not going to use his last name, but he's a great guy, big listener, and he runs this um, 33 pool. And the way it works, it's really interesting. The way it works, it's totally random. You pay a certain amount of money at the beginning of the football season, and it's uh, it's a couple hundred dollars. And then every week you're randomly assigned some a, a football team. And the way that you win the pool is 
you um, you get you, your your team that you're assigned has to win with 33 points. For instance, last week I was assigned the, the Steelers. So if the Steelers won their game and they had 33 points, I would have won. And so if multiple people win with 33 the uh, the same week, then you split the prize. Well, apparently this year uh, we've not had a winner for four or five weeks in a row. So for this coming weekend, the prize is something like $2,700. So right now, I, I mean, I am very interested in seeing what happens uh, this year. I got to see uh, this week. I I, uh, I don't have the email in front of me, but I have to see what the, my team is. I'm going to tell you about it tomorrow because um, maybe it's 2400 This is week, yeah, it's week seven. Right, so, um, no, it's $2,700. So I am very interested in seeing um, what my team is because uh, I could really use, okay, here's my team. Week seven prize, $2,800. $2,800. So if my team for this week is the Browns, so if the Browns win with 33 points, I'm going to win $2,800. So I'm a big believer in you You get out of the universe what you put into it. So I am, you know, I think it's kind of silly to pray for gambling. But for those of you that want to send some positive energy my way, uh, law of attraction style, you know, hoping that good vibes come my way. Root for the Browns to win with 33 points, and I will be $2,800 richer. So uh, I, I, I could really use that $2,800 this week, let me tell you. So, lo and behold, that was about a week ago, and I've been dealing with a lot of electronic communications difficulties. My computer is having a tough time. And yesterday I was so behind on my SMS text message, uh, my catching up with SMS text messages that at one time I had close to 200 unread SMS text messages. A lot of that is people who just keep texting me after I don't respond. And I just think, what if I don't respond, why don't you wait? Wait until I respond. And if you need to send multiple texts, send an email, right? So this way I don't have all these notifications. Other times it's a group text message that I'm in and other people are going back and forth, whatever. So I paid attention to the Browns game this weekend, and they did not win with 33 points. So I figured, all right, I lost. And then an interesting thing happened. I was looking at my phone yesterday. And again, I like to go and review my SMS text messages in chronological order. But I see I had an SMS text message from Ed. And I couldn't see the whole message, just the last word or two. And he basically, the last word was Bears. And I see, wait a minute, the Bears won on Monday Night Football with 33 points. I said, wait a minute, Ed is texting me and the Bears won with 33 points. Is it possible that I had the Bears and not the Browns? Then Joe from Ronkonkoma sends me a Facebook message and says, well, Frank, didn't you say that if the Bears won that you would win the $2,800 in your football pool. I said, I must have said the Bears. And I must have had the Bears. And then another guy posts in the Facebook group, the Bears won with 33 points. That means Frank won the money. 
lo and behold, I still haven't read all my text messages yet. So lo and behold, this $2,800, I was feeling great all morning. I was thinking, this is my lucky day. This is going to be the turnaround of a big hot streak for me in terms of luck. I'm going to get my laptop working again. I'm going to be able to get some sleep. I tell my wife about it. Honey, you'll never believe what happened. We won $2,800. She says, what are you going to do with it? I said, I'm going to pay my credit card bill. I also bought some pens with that money. And lo and behold, it was the Browns, not the Bears. So congratulations to the gentleman that won it, Dom Larigo. He is $2,800 richer, and I'm still just me. But you got to be in it to win it. Am I right? We're going to take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I have two recent interests, fairly recent. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm nothing but an amateur in both of these things that I'm about to mention. Amateur is even probably too advanced a description. I am a, this is, these are two hobbies that I have picked up recently. Because with all my free time, that's what I really need is more hobbies to make sure that free time doesn't lend to idle hands. One is uh, pickleball, and the other is AI art. Let's talk about pickleball. Both of these are in the news. Headline in the style section of the Sunday New York Times, pickleball is expanding, period. Tennis is mad, period. From New York to Hawaii, weekend athletes and government officials are taking part in a battle that goes beyond the fight for court space. And it chronicles Charlie Dulick and Michael Nicholas, tennis enthusiasts in Brooklyn. They've lately been consumed by another racket sport, pickleball. They have no interest in joining those who've taken up the game in recent years, which includes me. I've played pickleball all of once, but I, uh, you know, enjoyed it. I'm going to play again. Rather, they've been following pickleball's increasing popularity with a mixture of disbelief and outrage. Mr. Dulick, a tenant organizer, and Mr. Nicholas, an urban planner, are the founders of Club Leftist Tennis, a Substack newsletter that covers their favorite sport, tennis, through a progressive lens. In a recently published manifesto, called Against Pickleball, that's the name of it, they called for tennis players to, quote, oppose the gangrenous spread of pickleball at every turn, close quote. Guys, really? Really, is this what you want to spend your time on, you tennis players? I mean, 
you want to oppose the growth of pickleball? Why can't we live in a world where there's room for both tennis players and pickleball players? And I realize that's an oversimplification because the a lot of these tennis courts, which were already not exactly um, they were not exactly ubiquitous before, they've become a lot more scarce because they've been reformatted to play pickleball. You know what the solution is? Build more courts for tennis players and pickleball players. In the immortal words of Rodney Dangerfield, can't we all just get along? You know, I brought to your attention a couple of months ago a guy who's in the Pickleball Association, whatever the league is, and he said he views pickleball as the way to solve America's polarization problem. I think that's true because it brings people together, Democrat, Republican, old, young. You can play it if you're nine. You can play it if you're 89. And I think it's a great game. It's a fun game. We should be encouraging more people to play. And if you're um, looking to get more exercise, as I certainly am, it's a great way to get a little bit more exercise. Not a lot like tennis. Not intimidating where you feel like you're running five miles if you play one game. You move around a little bit. It's nice. So these two guys um, with their Substack newsletter, they adopted a semi-satirical tone in their essay. But they are serious about their disdain for pickleball. Pickleball, if you're not familiar with it, uh, you know you know who did a good um, piece on pickleball recently? CBS Sunday Morning. I'm still mad at them for their coverage of talk radio, but... They did a really interesting piece on pickleball, and I learned a lot about it. For instance, do you know why it's called pickleball? It's about 50 years old, the game. It's named pickleball because the the inventor of pickleball, his dog, if I'm remembering correctly, was named Pickles. And he the dog would watch all the games early on. And so they named it after the dog. How cool is that? Anyway, um, pickleball, if you're not familiar with it, is really fun. It's a combination of badminton, ping pong, and tennis, and it's played with a small paddle and a hard plastic ball. Now, it does seem the two, pickleball and tennis, are locked in a cultural battle that is playing out all over the country as pickleball players seek places to play and tennis players are defending their ground. For instance, officials in Asheville, North Carolina, submitted plans to convert three tennis courts into eight pickleball courts. Tennis players went nuts. In Arizona, there was so much bad blood between the two factions that a law firm provided guidance to homeowners association uh, on how to avoid lawsuits. Tennis players in Hawaii complained that the organizers of the Pacific Rim Pickleball Cup had created a potential safety hazard on the courts because of the gooey adhesive they had left behind after they laid out pickleball lines with yellow tape. When pickleball players in Exeter, New Hampshire, petitioned to convert three of the town's eight public tennis courts, tensions flared at a town meeting in what one resident called the Great Tennis versus Pickleball War of 2022. The winner of um, 59 Grand Slam tennis titles, Martina Navratilova, weighed in on this battle in New Hampshire. She said, quote, I say if pickleball is that popular, let them build their own courts. Tennis advocates have expressed irritation 
at the spate of reports chronicling the sport's rise. New York Magazine asked, is the next great pastime pickleball? NPR had an article, America's Fastest Growing Sport. The New Yorker weighed in with a story titled, Can Pickleball Save America? And the New York Times asked in a headline, Why is Pickleball so popular? You know who this, this is really irking? The tennis players. These tennis players don't like the media reception at all. Mr. Dulick, who runs that leftist tennis or newsletter that I was mentioning, quote, it's always the exact same phrases. Pickleball is much more accessible than fun, m- accessible and fun than tennis. Pickleball is the fastest growing sport. I'm cringing at being sold something so blatantly. Well, it's trendy. What do you want? That's the nature of trends. Everyone talks about it. You know, so what? Tough. Deal with it. Pickleball devotees say their sport is a sport of the people. It can be played by the young, the old. And it is very popular in retirement communities. And uh, they bolster their case by describing tennis as an elitist country club pursuit. I um, There's a lot of... There's a lot of pickleball momentum right now, and the tennis lovers are not at all happy about it. I think there's room for both. Nicola Arasic, host of the YouTube channel Intuitive Tennis, weighed in on the growing popularity of pickleball. So what are we going to do about this, guys? I hate seeing beautiful tennis courts destroyed and turned into pickleball because tennis is my life. While I have nothing against pickleball I do have something against uh, tennis courts being taken away from people and I really don't have a solution for you because what I'm selling is not very sexy see I don't secret formulas uh, to tennis success I don't sell instant improvements what I sell is hard work and it is possible that maybe people don't want to work hard anymore because while tennis might be simple it is not easy by any means it's hard work in order to get better, to move up in the NTRP levels, you have to put in years of practice, tons of repetitions. And I think that's why people say, you know, forget this, this is too hard. Let me start playing pickleball instead. Guys, you could play tennis, you could play pickleball. You could play billiards, you could play pool, right? There's all sorts of different games that you could play. You could play softball, you could play kickball. There's all sorts of different games that you could play on the same facilities. There's no reason you can't build more tennis courts that also serve as pickleball courts. I am just, I'm really disappointed in the tennis people. I played a little tennis in my day, not not at any advanced level. I was never very good, but I took a tennis lesson or two in my day. I had fun playing tennis. I enjoyed tennis, but um, just because. People are enjoying a new sport, which might make it to the Olympics. There's no need to get all defensive and territorial and adversarial and try to uh, make people go into one camp or another. Why not have everybody, the tennis players, the pickleball players, all work towards getting more courts? Aren't we stronger together? Think of the united force of a pickleball community coupled with a tennis community. Think of what we'd be able to do in terms of increasing recreational spaces. I think that's worth pursuing. 
And I am so done with this factionalism. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. It is interesting to me how pickleball has been around for decades, but for years it's barely made a ripple. Now the number of players in this country is around 5 million. So um, I think this is pretty exciting. But this desire for court space is insatiable. And the tennis players seem very resentful of all these articles and all this media coverage that pickleball is getting. 800-848-9222. A lot of people holding on a wide variety of subjects. So in order to be egalitarian, I am just going to go with whomever's been holding the longest. Let me begin with Charlie in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Frank. How are you? First, I'd like to wish Alex a happy birthday. How's he doing? He's doing fine. He's doing fine, I must say. He's still a, a little... Dower, you know, he's a little bitter. He's in a separate room now, right? So we had to make some staffing changes, and he remarked to me, and I felt bad for him, that he feels like he doesn't get to participate in the conversation because he's in a whole separate room now. He doesn't get to make real-time eye contact with it. So then the fact that – and now he, he said, I feel like I'm forget, I'm forgotten about – and the truth is, he is forgotten about because we all forgot his birthday and we remembered Kenneth's birthday. But uh, that being said, I think he's doing all right under the circumstances. I think he got a a little bit of a, a pay bump for his increased responsibilities. And it's a small price to pay for uh, being in a different room. Okay, that's good to hear. I called to talk about the elections, particularly one of Lee Zell. I was listening to some of the callers earlier as well as some of the guests that you had. I, I like the wide variety of guests. You, you really knock yourself out. You have a good show. You have a wide variety of guests on various different topics Thank and you. stuff. And I noticed that, and I wanted to compliment you point it out. I want to go back to what some of the, uh, the, the guests, some of the callers especially were saying, and their reservations they might have about Lee Zeldin. Something about January 6th, or did he vote to do this or do that? The point I want to make is that this is a survival election. And what I mean by that is we have people being thrown off the subway platform. I mean, thank goodness this last gentleman survived. But uh, Kathy Hoke was, besides all her corruption, kicked back Kathy, her husband, getting a concession for the stadium and everything at Buffalo Bill Stadium. She she's not going to fire Alan Bragg, the the uh, Manhattan district attorney, and if she is elected governor, she becomes the governor for another four more years. I I just see more New Yorkers moving to Florida to get away from the crime because she's not going to do anything to challenge the crime. If you want to if you want to change the crime, and your boss Frank Katzmatidis or John Katzmatidis is talking about this. He wants to work with common sense Democrats and common sense Republicans. Uh, And he mentioned that on the Sunday morning show, which you, Frank, are a frequent guest. I listen to you and as well as the other guests on his Sunday morning show, uh, which which he does on this radio station. And he talks about that. And with the crime situation, people are going to leave New York in greater numbers and either greater droves. and Lee Zeldin is a common sense politician, and, and uh, Kathy Hochul is a captive of the left. And, and I, I just think that for the survival of New York City and the survival of many of 
even the callers who may ride the subway. And, and if anyone wants the subway to become manageable again, you know, Kathy Hochul and uh, uh, the current mayor just aren't getting a job done. And we really need Lee Zelda, and I was wondering what you thought about that. Well, uh, thank you. You said a lot there, Charlie. I'm not going to follow up on every point that you raised in that four-minute commentary. I will say this. I thought Governor Hochul's answer on subway crime was very weak. And uh, I thought uh, I thought Lee Zeldin was very, very much on message. You know, the, the thing that I don't think Zeldin handled well was the issue of respecting the election. Right. I mean, um, Alvin Bragg, who, you know, uh, Lee Zeldin insists still that he's going to remove is, uh, you know, he was independently elected. And the solution, in my view, is to vote for someone else. Uh, we've never had a DA removed in New York City before. And for a governor that is not going to win Manhattan to come in and say, well, Manhattanites, I don't care how you voted. I don't care that he got 80% of the vote. I'm going to substitute my judgment for yours. It does reinforce what Hochul was was saying about him being sort of an election denier. That being said... I think um, I think uh, Zeldin performed very well, and for all the reasons I stated at the beginning of the program, that that's who I'm going to vote for. But um, I think that um, one of the things that you may see with Zeldin, even if he doesn't end up winning, is that his performance is so good that it could actually serve to help a lot of Republicans that are running for Congress this year and a lot that are running for state Senate. There are 10 competitive congressional races this year in New York State. I never thought I'd see the day. And you could see Republicans win some of these races, longtime Democratic seats that folks never thought were going to go Republican. The Tom Suozzi seat, the Kathleen Rice seat, I think the Republicans have a very good, tra- a very good chance of picking up both of those seats. And uh, for a while, two years ago, it looked as if Republicans were going to be a permanent super minority in the state Senate. And uh, now it's not inconceivable to see the Republicans possibly taking back the state Senate. Maybe not this year, but they could get close. And now I don't want to sound like I'm rooting for the Republicans. I'm not. But I do like balance. Right. And I don't think when one party controls all the levers of government that that's a healthy thing. I think the state was in much better hands when we had divided government. Now, I think the the state has sort of gone off the rails in terms of a lot of the policy agenda. And we've seen this some in some other states. And, you know, we, we, we have a big audience in Maryland now where we're on WCBM in Baltimore. It's looking like there's a very good chance that the Democrats are going to take back the governor's mansion in that state. And I worry about the same fate in states like Maryland. Where if you have one party in control of everything, what does that do to folks? 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Hey, Frank. I'd like to say that what feeds the frenzy of uh, supernatural situations of demons is that in Mexico, there's a town down there that the conquistadors, believe it or not, when they came from Spain, were afraid to go into because there were stories about uh, the, the people there that had demons in them, 
Well, it turns out that what what the story is, they have uh, tapeworms that are called breeder worms, and the breeder worms don't kill their host. What they do is they throw off eggs, uh, and the eggs go in the bloodstream oh, and boy. go out the fingernails. Now, when that happens, if someone's eating a salad, let's say, you're down there. Uh, this is really disgusting. The, the, the eggs uh, go into somebody's system when they eat it, and they hatch, and they don't have breeder worms. They have killer worms in their in their body. Tommy, the you're kill- all interested in discussing pickleball. They well, the killer worms. Uh, in other words. Hmm. Uh, come from that, and and uh, these people actually live and die with these breeder worms that I don't take kill that as them. That they uh, the, there's a whole town full of these people, and every once in a while they leave this town and they come to the uh, they come to different parts of Mexico. Or Do you even remember the, the name of the town, Tom? What? Do you remember the name of the town? Now, I, I read an article about it years ago in the newspaper. It made the newspaper. Well, I am, uh, kids. I am slated to visit Mexico in December, and I want to find out the name of the town so I can make sure not to go there. I'll tell you, if you are working in the reverse tourism bureau of whatever town that's filled with uh, parasites and demons and eggs, my goodness, that you, are, you should get paid a bonus. Uh, One more comment on the pickleball situation. One of the things that rubs some of the tennis people the wrong way, the tennis partisans, we'll call them, is they think this whole pickleball craze is a crock. Rather than being a grassroots sport, some people say, the tennis people say, pickleball has been imposed on America by wealthy entrepreneurs looking to make money from this. Many of the sport, meaning pickleball, many of the most influential boosters are seasoned investors. Connor Pardo created the Professional Pickleball Association Tour. He's the scion of Utah real estate developers. Tom Dundon, who now owns the Professional Pickleball Association, is a Texas billionaire who made his fortune in subprime auto loans. And the uh, self-promoting marketing executive Gary Vaynerchuk, a very popular podcaster, He's the latest to jump on the bandwagon. He bought a professional pickleball team, and he has claimed that the game will, quote, save people's lives. And the sport got another boost of publicity when LeBron James and Tom Brady recently invested in pro teams. So the tennis people are saying it's not as if America decided all of a sudden, hey, we like pickleball now. They say this is being crammed down our throats by the wealthy looking to get wealthier. There's another element just to leave you thinking about it a little bit more. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Tomorrow, uh, I was uh, calling basically to wish Alex a very happy birthday. And um, I watched the debate last night. I think it went really well for Lee. Um, but your name, I was volunteering again yesterday, and your name was really bouncing around the room that we will doing everything and a lot of people listen to you um a big shout out to dominic from lee zeldin's office he's a listener of your show oh very nice i will join you in giving him a shout out then and um 
everybody was really, you know, you would like the talk of the, uh, you know, a lot of people like get annoyed that you lean both ways sometimes. And I was trying to explain to them that he's not leaning anyway. He's got to give everybody a fair chance and let them speak their mind. And Frank is like, he's an independent. So a lot of people now understand it better. And um, like I said, um, I watched the debate and you know where I lean, Frank. I just, I can't listen to her talk. She talks and she smiles while she's talking to my dad. Always said, never trust the person that does that because they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. And I just, I don't know. She's just annoying. And I just hope for the best of the state, Frank, I just hope people open their eyes and realize what they're going through right now when they go to the voters. Are they early vote or they vote on November 8th? And just, you know, when you go to the grocery store or you're filling your oil tank or whatever, remember what you're going through right now and make the right decision. And uh, great show again, Frank, and have a good day. Well, uh, Joe, thanks. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for sticking up for us in that uh, the crowd you were watching the debate with. Give our best to Dominic and all the Zeldin people. And remind them, by the way, that when I was in the leadership of the Reform Party and Lee Zeldin was in a very close race in 2018, through my influence, we had the Reform Party endorse Lee Zeldin. So my my support for Lee Zeldin goes back a long ways. Uh, but that doesn't mean, look, I, you know, it doesn't mean I'm going to blindly uh, go along with any party line. You know, I, I, part of being an independent is being independent-minded. And I tell you who I vote for, right? My, my cards are on the table. I'll tell you why I'm voting for certain people. and uh, But I have no problem praising people that I'm not voting for. Or criticizing people that I am voting for. I think that's the one thing that's missing in media today is people that are willing to be an honest broker. And I'm willing to be an honest broker. I'm willing to call them as I see them, even if it's people that I happen to like. 800-848-9222. Jeff is in Connecticut. Hello, Jeff. Hey, good morning. How are you? Hey, listen, I build these courts for a living. I work for a sports building company in Connecticut, and... It's you see people line up to play pickleball. You don't see people line up to play tennis. We build, we convert tennis courts into pickleball courts, and when we do that, even in, in like a public park, it people will line up to play this, and it's crazy the popularity of pickleball. But you know, in the same respect. We do both. We make pickleball courts and we make tennis courts together where they can play either or. It works out, but more people like pickleball. Well, I'm not surprised to hear that. I mean, we've seen pickleball grow to, you know, 22 million people uh, playing it, even though there's something like uh, 21 million people play tennis and they've been around much longer. So I think you would agree with me, Jeff, based on your experience there's no reason you can't build more courts for both, right? Let the tennis players Absolutely. enjoy tennis and let the pickleball players play pickleball. Absolutely, and we do it all the time. We we take uh, build brand-new courts, we ghost lines in for pickleball, and we leave the tennis courts, and it works out for both. Yeah, I think that's great, Jeff. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hey, good morning, Frank. I just have to address something uh, that Colonel McGregor said, who I personally think is a Russian stooge, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's on their payroll from the things that he said. 
This guy was in our military, and he talks down our military and talks up the Russian military. The Russian military is a disaster. Their performance in Ukraine has been pathetic, and they're now employing mercenaries because they're so bad. And this idea that there's people in Washington itching to use nuclear weapons against Russia is ridiculous. And this is the same McGregor that advises Donald Trump? Seriously, Frank, you let the guy go on and on and on with more disinformation than I've ever heard on Ukraine and Russia, and you didn't push back on anything because you basically agree with him. And you know that I have been cautious about our approach in Ukraine because I'm concerned about nuclear war. But to say that Russia is some great place that people are rushing to get into is a lie. Russia is a dying country. Their population is declining. The only two things they have are their nuclear arsenal and their oil supply. Otherwise, no one would care about Russia. Okay, a okay, couple so, things, David, a couple things. One, yeah. um, I think it's a little unfair for you to sort of imply that uh, David McGregor, uh, Douglas McGregor might be on the uh, payroll of the Russians when there's no evidence at all to suggest that, right? Um, two, you know, I, I think I did ask several challenging questions that reflect the uh, bipartisan foreign policy consensus in Washington today on a bunch of different things. Three, th- the reason I have somebody like Douglas McGregor on, who I'll remind folks, not only has a PhD, but uh, has gotten a uh, Defense Superior Service Medal, a Bronze Star with Valor, a Meritorious Service Medal, Army Commendation Medal, more medals than um, than I can even I can't even count that high. And a guy that was in the military for thirty years, a guy that commanded. Um, all sorts of squadrons, all sorts of cavalries in the Kosovo War, the Gulf War. The guy has a lot of experience and a lot of expertise. I also have three and a half hours to give my commentary on things. So, yeah, I am interested in his perspective. That's why I uh, I invited him on. I do think you've been uh, very reasonable on this. But um, I think uh, also the two things that you mentioned, you say all Russia has is a nuclear arsenal and a a large um, energy supply. Those are two big things. And I'll also point out that the ruble has improved in value significantly, even in spite of a lot of the sanctions. So it's not and I don't think he was exactly making a commercial for how great things are in Russia. He was, as you say, saying that the folks in the United States and in the Pentagon these days are a little bit uh, do have a sort of an itchy nuclear trigger finger. But uh, I hear what you're saying. Uh, but, uh, you know, wh- whatever. I mean, I- I'm all for uh, putting on people that have an alternative point Could of I view. Can I say one more thing? Sure. Please, yeah, I'm here. Okay. All right. Listen, I understand the guy has military experience. That doesn't make him correct. And I am very worried about when I hear people saying about how wonderful, and basically that's what he was saying, you know, Russia standing up for traditional Western values. It is not. Russia is a thoroughly corrupt dictatorship where people who oppose Putin mysteriously fall out of windows, okay? We don't want that here. There are people like McGregor who talk with right-wing code words, and we know what they really want in this country. So this sympathy that they have for Russia makes me sick because he 
may claim that he is a patriot. He is anti-American, and it's sickening. You know, uh, David, thank you. I completely disagree with you. I think if you're going to call someone that's worn the uniform of the United States military and literally risk their lives in combat for the people of the United States, if you're going to call them anti-American, I think you need some evidence of that. And Tulsi Gabbard has been smeared with the same sort of modern McCarthyist slurs um, as McGregor has. I think you need some evidence of that. And uh, I think just disagreeing on foreign policy or military policy in my view, that doesn't make someone anti-American. I think, you know, you can agree to disagree. That's why we have elections. You vote for the other guy. Uh, 800-848-9222. Um, we're going to squeeze in one more here, and then we'll do the $1,000 minute. Those of you that are holding, you're welcome to continue holding. Gene is at the Jersey Shore. Hello, Gene. Franco, how you been? Not bad, Gene. Thanks. Hey, thanks for sending me that link. I sent it to my friend. Oh, you're welcome. Well, which link did I send yeah, you? That was, that was a great article. Yeah, w- which article, Gene? I, I don't recall. Uh, the the one about the uh, literary situation. Oh, okay, great. Yes, yeah, good. I'm glad you got yeah, it. My I enjoyed friend that. is always complaining about the uh, the literary community. Yeah, and how no. it's a fixed game, and you know, so. people that read are, are the worst. Yeah, but anyway, on on the pickleball, here's my pickleball story. Right, uh, I have. I happen to be in a life insurance business, so I'm, I'm usually here late at night. That's why I listen to you because I'm doing paperwork and stuff like that. So I got this friend in a life insurance business. His dad was my uh, my one of my mentors, and he completely abandoned the life insurance business. He moves down to Florida. You know, the family had money, obviously, and uh, he is now making a killing teaching pickleball. Interesting. A lot of these good for him. All these rich. Rich families and, you know, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> wealthy divorcees down in the down in Miami and areas like that, you know. So my wife decides she wanted to try pickleball. Now, my wife is not athletic in any way, shape or form. So we go to the Dick's store, you know, the Dick's uh, sporting, sporting goods, goods sure. store. I, I go for like 60 bucks for the racket. I go for another 15, 20 bucks for the balls. I would say the dust on the racket is about a half inch thick right now. Oh. Never, well, so she never, never played? touched it. Oh, well, I, well, why doesn't she go out and play? She never tried it. She's, you know, she's just not that athletic. She just had this whim, and we went to yeah, the store. Look, and I, got I get that, Gene, and, and I'm the same way. Gene, thanks for the call. I uh, I get into things, right, and think I'm going to pursue them, and then I, uh, I don't end up doing it. I mean, there's a reason... My the pile of books in my office is uh, very long. And, uh, my wife is always saying, "Oh, you know, here's this. Here's another book you won't read. Here's another newspaper you won't read," and um, it drives her crazy too. So I don't blame you. And I've done the same thing. I, I, uh, it took me a while. I bought my pickleball equipment maybe four or five months ago, and I just played for the first time three weeks ago. So it took me a while. You know, it's tough to find time to play, but uh, you know, I don't think. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? I think a lot of people may have different interests, different whims, and then you you get excited for a moment, and sometimes you need something else to rekindle your excitement to help you go the extra miles. I hope your wife does try it again. It's a fun game. It's a fun game. All right, those of you that are holding, please continue to hold. 
For the rest of you, if you would like to try and win $1,000 by answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We're going to do the $1,000 minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is Edwin Collins, a girl like you. If you would like to uh, comment on anything we're talking about, uh, you're welcome to give me a call. I uh, do want to do a quick update on AI art in just a minute. But uh, first, we're going to try and give someone an opportunity to win some money as part of The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Uh, let us say hello to Bill in Maryland, uh, the WCBM land. Hello there, Bill. Hey, good morning. Bill, I appreciate you listening, and uh, we really want you to be the first $1,000 Winner out of uh, out of the state of Maryland. Uh, do you feel up to that responsibility? Uh, I think I am. Good, I love it. That's why. Look, there's a reason they call Maryland the little little America, right? Okay. <laughs> I've never heard it called that. But okay. Well, maybe I just made that up, but I don't think I did. I think somebody else called <laughs> that. All right, um, that is not one of the trivia questions. So, Bill, the the rules are simple. Uh, that you're going to have 60 seconds to answer these trivia questions, and the timer will begin after I ask the first question. If you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next question, and, and uh, just don't get nervous and don't freeze. That's the thing. You just just think. A second answer, and we'll move on, and we'll be able to get through them, and hopefully you'll be $1,000 richer 60 seconds from now, okay? Yes, sir. All right. How many days are in a typical year? 365. In what movie will you find characters who are looking for a brain, a heart, and courage? Say that again? In what film will you find characters who are looking for a brain, a heart. Oh, what was the last name of the flying pioneers, Orville and Wilbur? Right. What city do the Astros play in? Hollywood. No, no. Phil, come on. The Hollywood Astros? Oh, I thought you said the Oscars. 
Oh, all right. Now, I, I unfortunately know. We said the Astros, the, the baseball team that's in the World Series. No, no, you, I thought you said Oscars. All right. Well, oh, I'm sorry. Well, Bill, thank you. I'm sorry. You didn't. You uh, didn't win. You didn't win. I don't think we can give him another opportunity. I think that was pretty. Cl- All right, Bill. Hang on. Uh, give Kenneth your information. We're going to send you a complimentary cap. But no, it's the Astros, the baseball team. Like Bill, I'm sorry that he didn't win there. But um, what are you going to do? The Hollywood Astros. I don't know. Doesn't have a nice ring to it. All right. You said what team do the Astros or what? No, like said, no. What city? I said what city do the Astros play in? Is that enough of a gray area? Should we give them another opportunity no. tomorrow? No, I don't think. What I city do the Astros play in? And he said, "What city do the Oscars play in?" Right. No. No. Yeah. All right. Hey. Um, so I, I have been into lately creating a lot of uh, AI art, right? And. After I started talking about it, we all started doing it. Uh, Matt Blaze has been making his AI art. Uh, uh, you know, I think um, the uh, music of uh, Alex Barnard is in part at least a creation of uh, artificial intelligence because I don't think any human intelligence could come up with, with something like that. And one of the AI art pieces that I did, which got a lot of attention was Roger Stone eating pizza in Siberia in the in the style of Monet. And Roger, the political consultant, he really got a kick out of this, so he shared it. And then it became a big thing, and he was being criticized by his own base for sharing this because of Pizzagate, apparently. I mean, it's ridiculous. Now, I had hoped that we would have Roger on this show, but... Uh, I, the combination of the late hours or early hours and the difficult questions that Roger knows I'm going to give to him, it hasn't ex- exactly made Roger that enthusiastic about coming on the show. And I get it. Fine. Uh, the show will continue with or without Roger's participation. But he does his own show on Rumble. Rumble is one of these sort of conservative social media networks. It's kind of an alternative to both Twitter and the YouTube. And he talked about some of the AI art that uh, has been the result of this controversy. So a good friend of mine, Frank Morano, who has a terrific talk show on WABC in New York, goes to an AI website and has them design a graphic of Roger Stone eating pizza. And then he puts it up online. Immediately, people say, ah, this is code word for child sex trafficking. No. Sometimes talk about pizza is about nothing other than pizza, the delicacy. And he's right. Now, anyway, um, a lot of artists are very concerned about AI art because it's really interesting and it's fun. And the more advanced programs are creating even more intricate pieces of art. For instance, if you want to type in in one of these AI art generators – uh, and I, the one I use is Night Cafe, but there's a bunch of them out there. All of them have their supporters and detractors. If you want to type in uh, Darth Vader mowing a lawn in the style of a Tim, Tim Burton movie poster, it will create art in 10 seconds with that text prompt. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And a lot of folks are concerned that this is going to result in artists losing their jobs. 
a lot of folks have said, what do you need professional illustrators for if you could just do this? For instance, I have thought about writing a children's book many times, but I don't want to hire an illustrator to illustrate it. Now I don't have to. I just bup, 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 type some stuff out. Boom, my children's book's done. I think those fears are legitimate. But Adobe, the leading maker of software tools for designers, they see AI as more of a creative assistant. At a news conference this week, Adobe showed how it could build generative AI tools into Photoshop, Lightroom, and other products. Fanciful images generated by the likes of Doll E2 and Stable Diffusion, those are two of the popular AI art creators, have raised some very thorny legal and ethical questions. But Adobe's early work provides a glimpse at an alternative vision of humans and AI working together. So at their conference in L.A., Adobe showed off a number of ways that generative AI could help creative workers without entirely supplanting artists. In Photoshop, for instance, Adobe showed how AI could offer artists an early look at a number of different creative approaches to a subject, allowing them to quickly explore options in far less time. In Lightroom, Adobe showed how generative AI could be used to enable a slider that allowed the background sky of an image to be changed gradually from day to night. And with its newer web-based express tool, Adobe showed how a text prompt could be used to transform any of its thousands of fonts to incorporate other objects. In one case, Adobe merged fonts with electrical cables, and in another, it infused the type with orchid petals. So Adobe's approach offers a very different approach to the projects that are being put out by other companies which have largely focused on what AI programs can do on their own. What Adobe is saying, so while some people see AI as a threat to artists' livelihood, Adobe is essentially saying he sees it as helping them, helping them to eliminate mundane chores. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I at least applaud Adobe for recognizing the fact that a lot of artists and illustrators are concerned about this and at least making a token attempt to throw a bone to the artist. One approach that Adobe is weighing is to rely on a so-called clean model that's trained only on images to which Adobe has full rights. There's also the question of who owns an AI-generated image. This is a very thorny area. U.S. law does not allow fully generated computer works to be copyrighted. Uh, One of the people from Adobe said he's confident that artists will be able to incorporate the output of AI into their own work without sacrificing their rights of ownership. I'm eager to see where this goes. Maybe this is not the situation that's disastrous to artists that a lot of illustrators feared. I don't know. Hey, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. We have one, two, three, four open lines. They're all yours. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight, and uh, we will end this program the way we end all, uh, by giving you 15 seconds to weigh in. Hopefully I'll see uh, some of you in about five hours at uh, the um, St. Patrick's Mass for Bernard McGurk. If you're interested in attending that, uh, it's open to anybody that wants to go. You just have to send an email indicating that um, you do want to uh, participate and go. Uh, just send an email to RSVP at WABCRadio.com. I'm going to try and find a place to sleep for the next couple hours. In the meantime, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Ellen in Baltimore. Yes, Baltimore is known as Charm City. Maryland is the land of pleasant living. And WCBM stands for When Christ Blesses Multitudes. You have a great show, um, Frank. I enjoy it. My dad was grew up in Yonkers, New York. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. Rob in White Plains. Yeah, hi, Franco-American. I got a statement and a question. First of all, Mary had a little lamb, and that's what kept the little whore from sleeping in the barn. And secondly, how long? Tell your audience, how long have you been playing with your pickle? Uh, decades. Uh, Mike in Lake George. Oh, I got to follow that guy. Hey, good morrow, Frank. Uh, you know what? Uh, I hope the Houston Astros kick ass on Filthy Delphia, I was called them, in their band box. I always liked Dusty Basic Baker because this Italian likes toothpicks. And a shout-out to Giuseppe from Raconcoma. And I'll raise a glass today. If you're lucky enough to have met Bernie like I was, I'm going to raise a glass of Paisano wine. Rest in peace, Bernie. Gary on Staten Island. Right on to Frank Romano interviewing Colonel Douglas McGregor. Right on, Frank. Right on. Right on. Neil. Hey, Frank. I got COVID. Thank God for Donald Trump. If I had not been for Operation Warp Speed, I wouldn't be here. Ooh, feel better, Neil. Speedy recovery. David. The world's dirtiest man died in Iran this week at the age of 91. I hope his successor is found somewhere in the New York City subway system. <laughs> Jay. Yeah, if it's true what that gentleman before said who was speaking about bugs coming out of people's hands in a certain town in Mexico from eggs that they have, then Donald Trump, someone should get a hold of him and let him tell that story about another reason not to have an open border and have unknown people coming in with bugs coming out of their hands. All right, that slams the lid on things for today. Uh, Back tomorrow with Brian Kilmeade and some other exciting things. Until then, Frank Moreno, good day.